Hey everyone, this is Wayne and this is a Green Pill Podcast. The world's at a very scary and uncertain place, which is one of the reasons why I'm super excited to publish this conversation with journalist and activist Donnie Moss, because his story can tell us a lot about what it means to be brave. See, back in the early 2010s, there were barely any journalists even writing about animal rights. It was seen as something that was not a serious subject. And when we were going to journalists, they'd scoff at us. But Donnie was unusual. Not only was he willing to write about animal rights and speak openly, honestly, and truthfully about what was happening in factory farms and slaughterhouses, he risked his personal freedom by walking with us into a factory farm and publishing a video and a report about what he saw as a journalist. Takes a lot of guts. And I don't think I fully understood how Donnie became the person he is today until I had this conversation. Because you see, growing up as a gay man in the 1980s and 1990s, uh, even at an elite university like Columbia, which is where he went to school, was a scary, scary thing to do. And overcoming that fear, realizing that he could be part of the solution and not part of the problem, was crucial to the confidence and bravery that Donnie shows today. But to understand Donnie and how we all can learn to be a little more brave, I think you just have to listen to this conversation, as I always say. So without further ado, here's my dear friend, Donnie Moss. Donnie, how are you doing? I'm good. How are you? Good. Thanks so much for hosting me in New York. Uh, one of my favorite places in the world to come to is New York City. And honestly, it's not even so much about the city. It's about coming to visit you. It's nice to have fun guests. So it's, thank you for staying with us. Yeah, it's already been a lot of fun. Donnie made us these delicious tofu sandwiches. I don't know how you learn to, to do what you do with tofu, but it is magical, my friend. <laughs> it really uh, is magical. I wrap it in flour sacks. To flour get the, sacks. To get, the, to get the moisture out. And then I oh. marinated it for like 10 minutes in soy sauce and okay. mustard. And threw it on a grill pan. Well, it, it, it feels like something my grandmother did. And, oh, um, it's nice to be Not to compare to you to my grandmother. Yeah. You're <laughs> <laughs> People sometimes call me grandma, so it's fine. <laughs> well, no, it's, it's been a lot of fun so far. But Donnie is also, you know, it's, it's so interesting. You are, I've said this to many people, including I think I've said this to Crystal, that you are probably the nicest person I know in the animal rights movement. Every time I come here, you're always making these delicious feasts for people. Crystal's very friendly. Crystal, you're very nice too. I'm sorry. But, um, and yeah, I'm comparing Donnie to a, a veterinarian who spends all her time rescuing shelter animals. And yeah, sorry, Crystal. Donnie's got you beat. Um, it's easy to be nice. It's easier to be nice than it is to be mean, I find. But I do have a dark side. You know, that's what I was going to talk about today. Because the activism you do, you are also probably the most adept grassroots activist. I shouldn't say grassroots, just activists. I know in doing pressure campaigns. And I know you've thought about it a lot. And for those of you who don't know what a pressure campaign, it's a campaign where, as you might imagine, you're putting pressure on often a particular individual decision maker and, and getting really good results. Um, so I want to talk a little about that tension. But before we even talk about that, just tell me how you got involved in activism. Because in many ways, you're an atypical activist. And from what I know about your early career, I mean, you went to Columbia, you worked at a bio big pharmaceutical company. Which one was it again? Hoffman and Roche. Hoffman and Roche. Okay. And, and now you're a grassroots activist who in many ways is harassing the sort of person you were in what, the early 1990s? Is that right? Yeah. When you worked at Hoffman and Roche? Yeah. Right through the late 90s. Late 90s. Yeah. Yeah. So, so tell me about kind of how you got into activism and because it, it, 
you're, you're at Columbia, you're at an elite university, you go to work for this big pharmaceutical company. What is it that pulls you to activism originally? So I should back up by saying that when I worked for pharma, I didn't really even know about animal testing. It's not something that you see or hear about it when you're working with marketing people and public affairs people. It just wasn't on my radar screen at all. And I wasn't an animal rights activist at the time. Uh, looking back, I would have done more research and tried to get more inside information, but I, I'm long gone. So what happened was in 2004, I was on my second date with my now husband, Jim, and we went to see the doc film Supersize Me. Do you guys remember that? The guy ate nothing but McDonald's for a month and his like liver fell out or something? Yeah. And that triggered me to read the book Fast Food Nation. And after reading that book, I decided, to, and I don't remember why I did this, but I decided to stop eating land animals. I don't know if it was because of the, they painted such a grim picture of, of factory farms or the healthy, I don't remember what it is that triggered me to do that. But a year later, I was still, still eating fish, dairy, and eggs, and I stumbled upon a vegetarian festival. I walked in and I took a, a, a lot of free samples, but I took um, a, C, a DVD called Meet Your Meat, mm. which is a video narrated by Alec Baldwin for PETA that takes you behind the scenes at, at factory farms. And I watched that 10 or 12 minute video and I shut my computer and I said, I'm, I'm never consuming an animal product again. And this was in 2005 and we were living in London at the time and I didn't know what I was going to eat because I didn't really eat a lot of fruits and vegetables and whole grains and legumes. I, I was really, you know, and I lost a lot of weight really quickly too, which isn't necessarily a bad thing, but, uh, it was, uh, it was a, a shock to the system back then. If I had gone vegan now, obviously you all know it's a much different time. You could eat burgers and all of the things that we used to eat. There are alternatives that didn't exist at the time. So it was definitely a shock to my system, and I didn't know any other vegans. So, so I went vegan in 2005. I was living in London, and I decided to go to a fur protest at Harrods Department Store. And that was the sort of the first protest I went to. Then I moved back to New York and got involved in the campaign to ban horse-drawn carriages, mm -hmm. made a doc film called Blinders about the controversy. Oh, and, yeah, I forgot about that documentary. That was great. Oh, thank you. Yeah, that was really a labor of love. I didn't know what I was doing. I, I just, I was out there on the hack line where the horses are picking up customers, and I thought I could probably do more than this. You know, I, don't, I could do more than just hand out information and protest. And so I realized that there had been no sort of films made about this issue, and I bought a a, a, a camera and I made a doc film and it's just sort of one, one interview led to another. Um, I got this amazing veterinarian named Holly Cheever to talk about, explain from a veterinarian standpoint why it's cruel and witnesses to accidents and victims and all, it just kept coming together. And then I had a 50 minute doc film that was aired on the documentary channel. You know, I totally forgot about Holly Cheever. I, I talked to her years ago. She consulted with us in some of our investigations and she's one of the veterinarians who has really led the charge in, getting the veterinary community on board animal rights. But right. um, this is making me think I got a right to it, which I will actually after this podcast. But I want to I want to walk us back because I think a lot of people saw Supersize Me. Right. A lot of people read Fast Food Nation. Not many people became animal rights activists who disrupt health commission meetings in New York, who make mm -hmm. documentaries about the horse-drawn carriages. And, and I want to kind of probe a little bit more what it was about you and even kind of your experiences at Columbia, your experiences as a communications person at a pharmaceutical company, because you told me previously, you actually dealt with activists, right? When yeah. you were a communications person. Yeah, I was a so liaison. So you were on the other side. You were a liaison to activists on behalf of a pharmaceutical company. 
So was there an experience growing up, either with respect to animals or with respect to activism, that primed you for that sort of shift later on when you saw Meet Your Meat? I mean, what was your life like as a kid? What was your life like at Columbia that, that would have changed you or, or shaped you in a way that would have made you receptive to becoming an activist? It's such a good question. You know, I often think back to what there was in my childhood that happened that, you know, made me into the person I am today. I, you know, I didn't hear the word vegan growing up. I don't think I heard the word vegetarian. Like huh. so many other families, we had companion animals. Yeah. And I love those animals, but I did not make the connection between those animals and the animals who were, I was sitting down to eat. In my 20s, I took the opportunity as a single person to travel a lot. And I found myself always going to on trips where I would see to see wildlife. Mm. That was much more exciting to me than going to a big city or whatever. And so I, I, I went to Africa. I went to all of these amazing places and saw animals in their natural habitat. And then I would go back to the lodge or hotel or whatever and sit down and eat animals. And I think it was probably... Uh, so I would loved animals. Yeah. I always loved animals. I just didn't realize I was eating them, as, as nutty as that sounds. Mm. Um, and I think seeing meet your meat and seeing the eyes... Mm-hmm. And hearing the screams of the animals in factory being mutilated in factory farms and being slaughtered in slaughterhouses, I just it all came together for me in an instant. That book, Fast Food Nation, I, I just I wish I could go back in time. Maybe I need to reread it. I don't know if it was the humane issues or the health issues that really grabbed my attention and tri- attention and triggered me to stop eating land animals. I don't remember. I just remember seeing Meet Your Meat in two thousand five. And, and it was such a defining moment for me. And, you know, and I took that DVD when I moved back to the United States shortly after that. And I, and I took it to my friend's houses one by one. And I naively thought that everyone would do what I, you know, I would put that DVD in the DVD player and they would watch and and instantly go vegan the way I had. I was so naive at the time. Um, but that didn't happen at all. And over the years, a lot of those people, you know, these are people that I was friends with before I became an animal rights activist and they're all still my friends. They've, they've slowly come along. Um, but I, it made me realize there are certain people who are just wired when they see those images, it's like an aha moment and that's it. There are those people and there are people who don't have that response. Yeah. It's funny that exact DVD. I, I don't know if you knew this about me, but I've handed it out thousands of times it's it's could be tens of thousands because wow. all the way through kind of college and grad school and law school i was primarily doing vegan outreach that's pretty much all i did and i didn't even really see myself as an activist i just saw myself as someone who saw an emergency situation and right. and thought that people would change in the same way you and i did just being stunned by this cruelty and having this emotional response. And I decided, oh, this is going to be so easy. You know, it's, it's this big secret that everybody doesn't know. And the moment someone puts this DVD in and watch, watches that pig squealing and there's like an infamous scene of a pig that's on, hooked and hoisted onto the slaughter line who's still alive and thrashing mm-hmm. and you can hear her screaming. Sorry for the, the vivid description, but it's, this is what the industry is, that everyone's going to change. So I, I think there over a three year period, I was handing out vegan cookies. Like I baked an absolutely absurd number of vegan cookies and offered everyone a vegan cookie if they took me or meat. Wow. Um, and actually big shout out to PETA because PETA has for, for decades now done so much to support grassroots activists and every single one of those DVDs came from PETA. You know, yeah. I wouldn't have been able to pay for them myself. I was a super poor graduate student. 
Um, that reminds me, me of the, um, you know, I, in Union Square years back, activists did pay-per-view. If you would, yeah. you'd get I, a dollar I, if you would I watch. I totally forgot about that. If yeah. you'd watch a video. And I would interview the people and yeah. and make videos of, of, you know, edited videos of those interviews yeah, so yeah. that people would, you know, people were stunned. So a lot of people just don't know yeah. because the industry still, do, I mean, in spite of the fact that these videos are all widely available on YouTube and other social media platforms, a lot of people just haven't seen them. Yeah. So I would like to think that there are tens of millions of people out there who just who are wired like the us yeah but who haven't seen it yet and maybe one day we'll see it and and have that aha moment and join us yeah you know two things about that um because i actually i don't think that particular type of activism is that effective i'm not saying it shouldn't be part of the movement ecosystem i'm glad people do that sort of outreach and i don't regret doing it myself because I learned an enormous amount from talking to thousands and thousands and thousands of people because I was handing out DVDs twice a week. I was leafleting every single day with Why Vegan from Vegan Outreach pretty much every day for a few hours. So, I mean, it was a full-time job while I was in grad school and law school to also do vegan outreach. But I think there's a lot of evidence it doesn't work quite as well as we might think. But the second thing I want to say beyond kind of the fact that it's quite, not quite as effective is that the reason it's not effective is because too often we think what causes change is just an individual decision and the individual attributes of the person we're talking to. And we think, you're like a reasonable person. You're a good person. You don't want to cause animals to suffer. And, and so I, all I have to do is give you the right information and your decision will change. When um, the reality is, and I'm actually going to talk to some sociologists about this the next actually it's tomorrow at the university of pennsylvania is a lot of times it's the social structures around you and even your experiences in the past that shape you and and create kind of the moment you're in and you know you're not actually that different than other people so for example i always say to my people who ask me how did you become this you know <laughs> you know in many ways very radical animal rights activist and i don't think i'm that different from my cousins who grew up in china and i'm very confident that if i grew up in taiwan and didn't have the experiences i had it didn't have the structures and systems shape me uh, in the way they shaped me. I'd probably be like an investment banker, or a professor. Because you look at all my cousins who are almost identical to me in Taiwan. They're all very mainstream people who do everything yeah. <laughs> the way everyone else does them. And then you got me, the weirdo in the family. Mm -hmm. But it's because of the distinct experiences I had. It might also, though, be... I'm going to argue with that for a second. Please. It might also be that there's something about your wiring. Because there was no nothing about my childhood that that I can trace back. It was, to, you know, to... to my being becoming an animal rights activist, it really was in my case that that when I watched Meet Your Meat, it, it was that, it was that moment. Yeah. Now, uh, you know, uh, other people grew up in the same environment as me, and you know, with the same sort of values in the same schools, and they're not doing what I did. So there, I feel like the same. There was something about um, about me and my wiring. I think. Yeah. Uh, that might not necessarily be related to the environment in which I grew up. I'm, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm, I yeah. can't wait to hear what the sociologists I'm, say. I'm not. I'm definitely not saying that there's nothing to nature at all. You know, I roughly speaking, I would say most of the decisions we make are maybe 50-50 nature nurture. Although it depends a lot on the particular type of decision or the particular attribute. But I'll give you an example of something that is wiring that might have been shaped by experience. Most people, when they're traveling around the world, are not obsessive seeing animals. Right. And I think that you and I share that experience. Everywhere I went when I was a kid, the only thing I wanted to do was go to see the zoo. Like we'd go to these incredibly amazing places like Tokyo, Japan, or you know um, Singapore, with all these urban metropolises and video games and amusement parks. And I'd be like, "Let's go to the zoo! Let's yeah. go to the zoo!" And 
I don't even think it's necessarily the case that I was born with that attribute that I really wanted to see Zeus. It's something that, for whatever reason, when I was, I think, three years old, I started identifying as someone who likes seeing animals. And then you cultivate that attribute over years, and you start just conceiving the world around you is not just a place for human beings, but a place for other animals. And every time I went to the zoo, I'd be so fascinated by the behaviors and the emotions. I remember really trying to imagine what it was like to be a Komodo dragon. You know what a Komodo dragon yeah, is? Sure. They're like the largest land lizard. And they're like these modern creatures that are almost dinosaurs. Because I think they get up to, I don't remember how many, how many hundred pounds, but I think they get up to like 300, 400 pounds. They're massive, massive lizards. And they're really fascinating because they look very slow and reptilian, but they can run. I don't remember exactly how fast, but it's much faster than a human being. Like you cannot run away from a Komodo dragon. Wow. And you know, the way they kill is oftentimes by biting and then they have this incredibly toxic bacteria that just seeps into your bloodstream and causes sepsis really quickly. Like you have, a, you know, this massive bacterial infection. I was always fascinated by all these aspects. But the thing that was most fascinating to me was just imagining what it was like to be a Komodo dragon. Like I'd imagine, wow, what if I had saliva that could kill people, you right. know? Like what is the thought process? What does it feel like to be this incredibly strong creature that looks reptilian and slow and basks in the sunlight, but then at a moment's notice, I can just rush out and run at like 30 miles an hour and chase down any animal. And I think most people don't do that. Even people who are wildlife people, they go and they stay at that surface level where they're looking at the creature, fascinated by their behavior and their characteristics, but not diving into the psychology. And I'm guessing, I'm guessing that in your interactions with animals, one of the things you started to cultivate in yourself was this sense of wonder, not just about the external attributes in the animals, but the internal consciousness. Am I right about that? Definitely. Yeah. And, you know, it's so relevant this week because Kaporos is happening, this, you know, ritual slaughter whereby practitioners swing chickens around their heads and we're seeing thousands, tens of thousands of chickens in these uh, crates, these horrible crates stacked up on top of each other. And I'm putting myself inside of those crates with those chickens, imagining the terror and the pain and the suffering that they're feeling right now. Um, and so I, I guess I do sort of imagine myself being an animal and what they're, what they're going through. Yeah. And the, the, that empathy is something that all of us have. I, I just gave a talk at the University of Denver Law School saying that I think that's really our superpower. We have these big frontal lobes. It's the front portion of the brain that is much larger and more developed in human beings than any other species. Mm. And it's the thing that allows us to have what cognitive scientists call theory of mind. Um, as far as we know, most animals do not have this ability to the extent we have it. And some of them may not have it at all. And a theory of mind is basically the ability to imagine what another mind is thinking. I have a theory of both what a mind is, what is consciousness, and the ability to say to you, Donnie Moss, I want to try and understand what you're thinking. I want to try and understand what you're feeling. And that is a superpower in two ways. One is just pragmatically it's a superpower because it turns out having that ability makes you an incredibly powerful species. It's one of the reasons human beings have dominated the planet because we can look at all the other animals of this earth and, and predict who they are. I mean, there's, it's almost like, it's almost like these superhuman mutants who can see into the future, you know, yeah. how powerful they are because they can see how things are going to unfold and they can... You know, either go back in time, go forward in time, or even just predict the future and decide, oh, all I have to do is put this cup here and you're going to trip and fall and something bad will happen to you. Mm -hmm. We kind of had that superpower, but it, that pragmatically gives us enormous influence over the world around us and over the animals around us. But the other way it gives us power is just ethically. It, it makes us at least potentially 
these incredible beings that have the ability to, to help other animals. Because if you can imagine what another being is going through, that means you can also alleviate their suffering. Right. right? And the irony, though, is, is we that, don't use it. Well, that, but also animals really don't want our help. They just want to be left alone. Yeah. You know, if, if wild animals just want to live their lives in peace. Yeah. Um, and of course, there's something nice about rescuing a wild animal who's in trouble. But generally speaking, we, we shouldn't have to help them. They should, we should just leave them alone. Yeah. There's, I mean, I, I would push back on that. I think that um, human beings are a wild animal, too. We right. were at one point. And we want to help each other. And I'm definitely not suggesting there should be massive interventions to, you know, change ecosystems to make alleviate animal suffering. But I do think there's something inherent to the nature of compassion um, that should exist in all contexts and times. So, and I think there's something inherent in human beings that even when we see a wild animal suffering, um, like I, I've done a lot of wild animal rehab in my life. And I think there's, there's something deeply human about inflicting suffering and war and conflict and resentment and otherization. But there's also something deeply human about seeing another creature in pain and saying, I want to help. Oh, I, I couldn't agree more. We definitely yeah. should help yeah. uh, in instances. I'm, I'm, it's just more theoretical, philosophical. You know, if we lived as wild animals do, sort of at one with nature, we're born, we take just what we need to survive, we die and we leave the planet the way we found it. I guess that's what I'm referring to. But we've, sure. we're, we're, we rape, pillage, and plunder. We've, we're destroying not only our own sort of ecosystems, but those of all of the other animals around us. So we yeah. do need to intervene now. We do need to help. We do need to rebuild, uh, re recreate the rain, re replant the rainforests and, yeah. and, um, and, and take the plastic out of the oceans and make the planet safer for all the other animals too. I just, yeah. I, ideally, we would all just be living in harmony with each other and with the planet. Yeah, yeah. No, it's kind of like, you go into someone's house, you mess it up, you kind of have a responsibility to clean the house, right. even if you didn't have one before, you know? Like, yeah. Um, so, but tell me more about these experiences of wild animals and even animals when you were growing up. Did you, did you have like a formative experience? Why do you think it was that you always wanted to see the wild animals? And did you have like a particularly important experience or trip where you saw some wild animal that really shaped kind of the way you, you conceive of animals? Uh, when I was about 15, I was lucky to be invited by another family to go to the Galapagos Islands. Oh. And I have this vivid memory of sitting on a beach. And, you know, they don't, they encourage you or discourage you from interacting with the wildlife in any way, shape, or form, which is, of course, the, what we, we, shouldn't, we shouldn't go near them. But I was sitting on the beach and a baby seal slowly crawled toward me and I didn't move. And I was thinking to myself, well, they told us we're not supposed to touch the animals, but what if the animals touch us? But no, <laughs> there was nobody there at the moment, and I just kind of sit, sat still. And before I knew it, this seal, seal was splayed out on top of my body. Whoa. And I didn't, you know, I was tempted to sort of wrap my arms around the seal and give the seal a hug, but I didn't because they said, you know, the oils from your hands could scare away the parents. I don't know if the parents, yeah, I don't know true. if they were just saying that yeah. to keep, keep us away from the wildlife or if that was real, but I did not touch the seal, but the seal was all over me. And before I knew it, I was surrounded by people taking pictures and, you know, just observing. And it was definitely a special moment, but it was, it wasn't for, the, you know, 17 more years until I went vegan. So, you know, I don't... Wait, I, how, how the hell does that happen? What, what is going on? I mean, is that, is that something that baby seals sometimes do? And what do you think? 
I mean, I, I, that's, I've never heard of anything like that happen before in my life. Uh, and I, I could probably show you a picture of it after okay. this. Um, we, uh, uh, what was going on? I don't, I don't remember. I don't remember what if, uh, if the naturalist gave an explanation. Huh. It just happened. And, well, look, you see videos, these viral videos of people in the ocean and a seal will swim up to them. And, yeah. you know, th- there are these moments where animals sort of interact, you yeah. know, with us in nature. And this was just one of those moments. So the seal, you're just lying on the beach or sitting on Sit- the beach? Sitting up and... And you're looking at these seals off in the water? There was and just one. of the one, babies just comes There was up. just one I, on the beach, maybe 50 feet away uh-huh. from me. And he or she just slowly made his or her way up to me. Uh-huh. I didn't think that, let's just say it was a she. Let, I didn't think she was going to uh, touch me. <laughs> um, I, I mean, I guess I was probably hoping at the time that she would come closer and closer and yeah. closer. But I certainly didn't. I mean, I was shocked when she splayed herself out on my... Body. What do you think she was doing? And what do you think she was thinking when she comes up to you? Do you think she's looking for food? Do you think she's just curious? I mean, seals are these incredibly inquisitive animals, from what I understand. I think she, I felt like she was just saying hello. Saying hello. Wow. Uh, I looked like a, a gentle, I wasn't going to harm her. And yeah. I was sitting very still. And unless she thought I was a rock. Yeah. Uh, I, you know, no, she, she knew I was alive. Yeah. So what did she do when she came up on you? I mean, was she looking at you? Was she nibbling on you? Oh, was God. She, I, I did she rest on you and take a nap? Uh, she wanted to breastfeed. And, oh. Uh, no, I'm kidding. I don't know. Okay, I was going to say, I thought maybe that was what was happening. I, maybe it's possible. I don't know. I was just joking. Yeah. But may, who knows? Maybe that was her motive. Yeah. It was just a very gentle greeting. Yeah. And the know, way a puppy comes and rests their heads on our laps, it was just a this gentle creature. Yeah, no, I mean, it is true that a lot of baby animals will go to larger animals of the wrong species sometimes and just because they assume a larger mammal that is safe could have some food. I mean, this happened to me a couple of days ago at a sanctuary. There's two baby goats. I, I'm clearly not a goat. For those of you who don't know, I'm mm-hmm. human being. I'm not a goat. And I just, I'm a larger mammal who's treating them with kindness. And they think, oh, you must be my mother. Oh. And and they came up and they're just like sucking on my my, 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 my fingers and uh-huh. basically asking me for milk. And it's, it's a beautiful thing. And it reminds me of one of the saddest things about the mistreatment of, of domesticated animals, farm animals in particular, is that all these animals are essentially babies, um, not only when they're killed, but even as they become adults, there's this process whereby we've selectively bred animals to essentially continue to be children into their adulthood. So dogs, for example, are basically baby wolves. Even in adulthood, they have these big floppy ears, big eyes, big paws. Their mannerisms and behaviors are very much like wolf puppies. Pigs in the wild. If you deal with a wild boar, Mm. (laughs) you're going to be in a lot of trouble. They're extremely aggressive, strong animals, um, large animals that can easily kill a human being. And, you know, I was just giving a belly rub to a 600 pound pig a couple days ago and they, they act like a little piglet. So in many ways, these animals almost want to form a connection with us. They, they yearn for affection and, and comfort and safety the way baby animals do. And then we brutalize them. Mm. You know, it's, it's like we've changed them to make them particularly vulnerable to and desiring of, of our love. And what we give them instead is hate and violence. And there's something that's just deeply, deeply, disturbing about that it's like imagine that baby seal who was seeking something obviously from you whether it was food companionship even just a friendly greeting imagine you attacked her instead the moment she came up to you and i mean everyone would say donnie what the hell's wrong with you like this is a magical moment of bonding of a vulnerable creature coming to you and saying i trust you 
and, and, and asking, will you be kind to me? And instead you treated her with, with brutality. And, and that's kind of what we've been done doing systemically to animals across the planet. It's, it's such an, an incredible betrayal, but we all know it happens behind closed doors. Yeah, it does. Uh, and you know, that's, that's a, maybe a reason why everyone should visit a farm sanctuary because when people can make that personal connection with the farm animals and yeah. realize that there's someone there that, 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 uh, breast on their plate belonged to someone who wanted to keep it and this gentle yeah. creature, maybe they'd stop eating them. Yeah. So what happened after this seal like laid down on you? I mean, what did you say to your family? And like, what, what, what was, I mean, there must've been some commotion among everybody, right? I mean, I mean, there were a lot of pictures. This was yeah. long before social media and the internet okay. and all of those things, but it was just an exciting moment for, for me and for everybody else. And it probably did, um, entice me to do more wildlife animals. Yeah. Uh, trips because from that point on and anytime I took a trip and had sort of any sort of sway in where we would go it would be to somehow see animals yeah and it's funny I have um, I have for decades wanted to go to the Galapagos because it's it's such an important place just in the history of of ethology and in and, and animals because of what Darwin did there right in, in understanding natural selection and how you know, Darwin is famous for studying evolution, but he's also known for saying that all life is equal. You know, he was in many ways an anti-speciesist and animal rights activist. And before Darwin, there were so many people, including scientists, you know, people like Descartes, who thought that human beings were just a separate category, that right. animals are animals and human beings are just completely different. And we weren't sure where we all came from. And in the Judeo-Christian tradition, the idea was that human beings were separate because God made us in his image, while the animals were just these lesser beings, beasts of burden. And Darwin was the one who went to the Galapagos and saw how all these creatures, the finches, the tortoises, were changing in, in their environment and came up with this theory that, no, actually, we're all part of the same web of life. And who we become depends on the environmental pressures around us, natural selection, that there are different niches in the environment, and each animal is sort of fitting its niche, but we're all part of the same community of life, and not even the same community, the same family. Um, and the Galapagos so powerfully represents that for me. I don't know if I'm actually going to go there and feel that way. I hope it's still I, there when you're ready to go. I know. It's terrifying, because so yeah. many of the animals, I've heard like some finches are dying off. Like the finches were these birds. Did you see finches when you were in the Galapagos? No? Uh, Blue-footed boobies. Okay. I don't remember if I saw finches. I don't think boobies are finches. Yeah. Uh -huh. Finches, I think, are these weird ground birds. And there's mm -hmm. all these different types of like different bills. And and the reason Darwin recognized that there must be something going on where species are changing in the face of environmental pressures because the finches were all very similar in a way. They're all part of the same family, like biological family. But every one of them is different because, and I don't even remember the exact different niches they fill, but one will have like a special beak for digging around the dirt. Another one will be very good at, you know, finding something in the trees. I don't, I don't even remember all the details. And, and that kind of showed him that, no, we're all kind of different, but we're all the same. And we're, we're, we're just adapting to the environment in these special ways. But at root, we all come from the same origin, which now we have DNA evidence showing, yeah, we, we actually all did. Like all the life in this earth, even plant life, comes from a similar evolutionary origin. And certainly animals. I mean, human beings, we didn't diverge from other species until a few hundred thousand years ago. That's not very long mm -hmm. in the history of the planet. I was thinking as you were talking about Darwin... Uh, about Jane Goodall, who went mm. to Tanzania in the early 1960s to study chimpanzees, and she was ridiculed for stating that ch uh, chimpanzees have personalities and emotions. 
uh, think that's just so recent in the course of history that people didn't believe science. The scientific community ridiculed yeah. her for suggesting that animals had emotions. Yeah. It's it is wild ridiculous. when you think about it. It is wild. And now, obviously, it's the overwhelming consensus. No one who studies animal consciousness, especially chimps, thinks that animals don't have emotions. Um, and chimps are obviously very special to you, and I want to talk about that more. But um, tell me more about kind of, so you have this one wildlife experience, and then are there any other experiences, either with animals or of activism? Like when you were at Columbia, were you a vegetarian? You weren't even a vegetarian at that point. Were you thinking about it? Wasn't on my radar screen at, at all. all. And, huh. and, and that's, you know, seven years after I, Had no, no, just three years after, right? I was 15, so I went to college when I was 18. Yeah. There was no, I don't remember any anything at college about animal rights or veganism, vegetarian. This was 1990 to 1993 when I was at Columbia. Okay. Never even came up in conversation as far as I can recall. Uh, when I went, when I saw Meet Your Meat in 2005, I didn't know any other vegans. I didn't know anything about animal rights activism. I mean, I, you know, all, I guess all I had heard is that PETA throws blood on people wearing, I mean, <laughs> I knew what just the absolute and, and probably probably looked down on PETA at the time. Yeah. If I had to guess, I wish I could go back in time. Um, Did no. you know any vegetarians anywhere through life? I don't, I like don't, in university I, don't think, or no? I don't think I was exposed at all to a vegetarian. When I made this wow. decision to go vegan, I didn't know anybody. Huh. I didn't have, I don't think I had anyone to turn to, to discuss it with. Yeah. Um, it just, I just saw this footage and thought I'm never going to participate in this again. Yeah. So what, what was unfolding from 1990 to 1993, especially in New York City, was the gay rights movement. Um, so I wonder, I mean, was, I'm just trying to hypothesize. Was there anything about, I don't even know, were you involved in gay rights activism in 1990 to 1993? Because that historically is just like the ACT UP period, the AIDS crisis in the late 80s, and just mass civil disobedience in the streets, you know. So I came out of the closet in uh, probably 1993, Okay, so near your end. In, yeah, at Columbia. and uh, it would have been my junior year, but I graduated a year early, so it ended up being my senior year. So 1993, I came out of the closet. By 1995 or six, I was working for a pharmaceutical company uh, serving as a liaison between the company and AIDS activists. Okay. So very early on in my career, late 90s into the... No, th throughout the 90s into the 2000s, I was... Uh, on the other side of you know the coin, so we had act up protesting at the gates of the company that I worked at, wow. and so I was the one talking to security, talking to fellow people in public <laughs> affairs, sort of how to manage this. And at the time, you know, I really did relate to the people who were outside the gates much yeah. more than I related to the people who were inside the gates. I felt like I'm on the wrong side of this. Wow, um, and. I learned a lot about how to be an activist from observing ACT UP and from serving as a, you know, serving on the other side. So now when I'm working on a campaign and there's a corporate target, I can sort of put myself in the, in shoes, the shoes of the people on the other side and understand the conversations that are taking place inside between marketing and public affairs and security and the legal department and the regulatory department, depending on what kind of company it is. I can imagine myself doing that kind of crisis communications. And so I, I bring those skills to my own Activism. campaigns. Even, even, you know, having worked for a, a big company, you know, I, when I run a campaign, I'm thinking in terms of objectives and strategies and tactics. That comes from 
having worked for a big company, I don't sure. think I would think along those lines had I not had that corporate experience first. For people who don't know what ACT UP was and, and oh, right. what the crisis was, because, you know, unfortunately, a lot of people don't even remember. I mean, because gay rights seems like such a mainstream issue now. I mean, you have right. like Raytheon it's really and a- Halliburton. It's, a- it's AIDS activism, though. Yeah. I mean, that's separate from the gay... I yeah, mean, that's it, it all came yeah. together, but... But tell us about what was happening in the 80s and 90s. And, and was your first exposure to it when you were at the, the pharmaceutical company or was it at university? Because I imagine Columbia, I, I don't know this, but I imagine Columbia was an epicenter for a lot of this activism too, was it, in the early 1990s? So early 90s, probably not so much. Really? I mean, it, probably ACT UP came, was early, came about in the sort of late 80s, mm-hmm. early 90s. Yeah, yeah. That's when it was at its height. Um, so I didn't see much until I came out of the closet and sort of had my eyes open for it and then participated. So while I was working at a drug company, and this is even before I did HIV related work, uh, during the week, I would go to the gay men's health crisis on the weekends and do sort of volunteer. I was doing intake summaries and I was reading the stories, uh, you know, maybe a 20 page interview with somebody who came in for services mm. and I would have to sort of summarize it in one page and, and, and identify what their needs might be, what social services, housing, food, healthcare. And so I did get involved just, but, and that had nothing to do with my pharmaceutical work. That was just me as a gay man in the nineties living through this epidemic before the drugs came out in 1990, late 95, early 96. And this is an epidemic that's specifically harming the gay community. For, for people who don't remember this, but this is something that, and it was being decried in public by very powerful figures like Cardinal O'Connor in New York, saying that this is kind of an epidemic that is almost, you know, blaming gay people for their own suffering, essentially. Right. People Correct? didn't take yeah. it seriously until yeah. it began to affect other communities. Yeah. But like, at the beginning, it was gay men and Haitians. Yeah. And nobody cared about those groups. Yeah. And so it, it was, you know, I think it was a few years before that tens of thousands of people died oh, before yeah. Ronald Reagan uttered the word HIV or AIDS in public. Yeah. I mean, and, you know, there was a, a book and the band played on that uh, by Randy Schultz. Um, it's a brilliant book about the history of the AIDS activist movement and the AIDS epidemic in the United States. And he talks about the Tylenol scare. I don't know. If if you remember that there was I I guess, some poison Tylenol or diff- or toxic time and you know, Tylenol was taken off the shelves across the whole country in a matter of minutes yeah. uh, because a few people died. Yeah. I, I, you know, I might be bastardizing the story, but the no, point I, I is the point is, you know, that affected sort of mainstream society and it was dealt with quickly. AIDS was ignored because of yeah. who was affecting and the, and the gay community had to come together in Los Angeles, San Francisco, New York, and take care of each other and advocate and figure out how to survive uh, in the face of such a horrific disease and a lack of empathy from the mainstream public. Yeah. And that's where ACT UP, the AIDS Coalition to Unleash Power, was born. And uh, they, they are an inspiration to me in my activism. How to Survive a Plague. Did you see that documentary? I did. Film? It's amazing. I mean, every activist yeah. for every social justice movement should, should see yeah. the sacrifices and the courage that these activists made to be heard and yeah. to save each other. Yeah. And I, uh, nowadays, I think people see HIV. I mean, I think HIV is still something that causes fear for people, for sure. But it's, it's basically a, a chronic condition that is under control. You know, with the medication we have, it's 
There are definitely places in the world where that's not true. Like if you look in sub-Saharan Africa, AIDS is still ravaging and killing so many people. But in the United States, it's not nearly the threat it was in the 80s. And, um, you know, I grew up in that time period too. And I remember even as a straight kid in Indiana, like I don't, do you remember Ryan White? Mm, Of course, yeah. Yeah, um, it was creating terror. And it wasn't creating, so it's it's interesting because it's not that people were not concerned about AIDS. It's that their response to it was not, let's try and help the people who have AIDS. It's keep them away from us. They are dangerous. Um, They're doing something that's unethical. It's because they're doing this disgusting thing. They get what they deserve. They get what they deserve, exactly. Instead of trying to help them. Instead of trying to help them. And it was, Ryan White was a really, I don't know what your recollection is. He's a hemophiliac? Yeah, yeah. So he was not gay. But he was in many ways, very important for me and my family to start having empathy for people with AIDS because even the mainstream media, I mean, this is at a time when I'm not just talking about, you know, Ronald Reagan, even Democrats, like everybody in our society was treating people with AIDS as probably gay, probably getting what they deserve and someone who's dangerous to me because, you know, there was not a lot of knowledge about how scientifically how it was transmitted. It actually kind of reminds me of COVID a little bit, just all the paranoia and right. conspiracy theories. But so people would just be scared. And I remember when I was growing up, like even if a kid, like a kid, you know, like 11-year-old kid demonstrated some feminine or possibly gay characteristics, it didn't even actually matter if they were gay. Not only would you judge them for being gay, but people were a little scared of them. Like, and that fear was real. It was such a weird time. Because period. that little boy Could might... Be, yeah, he might have AIDS. You know, you just thought... And this is in Indiana where like, you know, I mean, a 12-year-old kid who's, even if he is gay, is going to be deeply closeted because everybody's Christian. Everyone, you know... Back then, especially. Back then, especially. It's, it's different yeah. now where kids are, have more oh, courage. Absolutely. Yeah, they, they have courage and they're supportive structures. Right, right. There, there were no right. gay rights organizations that were really coming out and trying to encourage people and help people and support people coming out. Nowadays... You know, it's it's such a different environment. When I was when I was coming out of the closet in nineteen nine in the early nineties, there was no Will and Grace, there was no yeah. Ellen, there were no role models, there was nothing. nothing. Yeah. Um I you know, the only portrayals of gay people on in the media were just negative. Yeah. And so it was a much scarier time to come out. And it was during AIDS. It was before yeah. the drugs came out that, you know, people had this Lazarus syndrome where they came back to life. Mm-hmm. Uh but yeah, people people most people today who are younger than you know 40 probably don't remember. I remember being in Fire Island, which is a, a beach resort in, in the summer, and seeing men being pulled around in red wagons. They were skin and bones. They just wow. went there to die. It was so vivid. It was so shocking. Um, I think that- Wait, we see more about that. What, I've never heard of Fire Island and what, what, what was happening So Fire there? Island is a beach community sort of off the coast of Long Island. It's a sliver of, of an island that has many different communities on it. And two of them are gay, uh, Cherry Grove and Fire Island Pines. Fire Island Pines is uh, just mostly, mostly gay men. And it was a place that gay men go during the summer to escape the city, as opposed to the Jersey Shore or the Hamptons or any of the other places where Catskills, where people go. And I had a share house there where I could go like, you know, four times in the summer or something. And I just, I, it was before there were drugs Mm -hmm. that worked for AIDS. And I remember just walking along the, there were no cars. You had to walk along a boardwalk. Mm -hmm. It was very, very small, you know, narrow boardwalks. And 
uh, just pe- men were being pulled around in red wagons, mm. skin and bones. I saw it a few times. Wow. And, um, you know, they so probably like basically hospice care. You know, someone who loves them is just carrying them around in a wagon and giving them some last moments in, in the I, outdoors. I think people went to uh, Palm Springs, Key West, Fire Island Pines to, to, die. to die. Wow. There was nothing, there was, there were no drugs back then. Yeah. Um, and obviously you couldn't do that out in the open in other places because everyone would be terrified probably. You know, also for, for many of these men, it was their happy place. It was yeah. like, the vaca- it was, um, you know, if I'm going to die, I might as well do it on the Fine. beach or whatever. Yeah. So what was your, I mean, what is your reaction during this time? You must've been terrified personally. I, I was terrified. Really? Back then in the early nineties, you know, when you got an HIV test, you had to wait two weeks Oof. for the results. And in, despite the fact that I, practice safe sex you you just, just never know. knew yeah. there were you know and there's you still can't know for sure you know there are people who have contracted hiv in ways they didn't think they could yeah uh and so i was just terrified um i lived in fear yeah you know to me i still think when i think of sex i still think you know i associate sex with death, death because ha- having yeah. lived through that and having seen so many people die wow even to this day yeah that is deep and scary yeah. But I, I get it, because I remember back in the early 1990s or mid-1990s, I got my first blood test, and an, I'm a straight kid who was a virgin when I got my first <laughs> blood test, and I remember when I got my first blood test, I was scared. I was scared, like, oh my God, what if I... Be? And I didn't... You know, and again, my, my, my parents, my mom is a math person, my dad's a biomedical researcher, I knew the evidence in science about how it was transmitted, but the fear was so great in that time period that even me, like a 15 or 16 year old straight kid who's getting my blood, who's going to Red Cross for the first time, like they, they test your blood before it can be, and they tell you what the test result is, I remember I was scared. Yeah. And like, for me, if I'm yeah. scared, like I can only imagine what it was like to be a, a gay kid or a young gay man in the 1990s. I, I mean, mean, that must have been such a head trip. And I had it easy. Think about if, if I had been 10 years older or five yeah. years older, all of my friends would have been dying, dying around yeah. me. I mean, I once met a guy in the 1993 or four after I started my first job. I was living in Long Island at the time. And, you know, I also used to see this guy at the gym all the time. And I guess we started talking one day and he, I asked him about his life and he didn't seem to have any friends. He said, every one of my friends died. Oh my God. And I think that that story was common. Yeah. It was, but I don't think most people today understand what happened, what these people went through. Yeah. Largely gay men. They lost their entire network of friends, the the survivors. Yeah. What percentage of gay men ended up dying? Do we know? I mean, I know it was... I think tens of thousands, maybe even hundreds of thousands. Oh, oh, it's definitely more than tens of thousands. I mean, it wiped away a whole generation. Yeah. Right. Anybody who was, let's say, 20 to, you know, 60. Yeah. Many of those people died, Died. you know, before, both before, during and after we knew how it was transmitted. Yeah. But think about all the people who were infected, kind of like COVID before in China that was spreading before people even knew there was a problem. Yeah. The same could be said here uh, of HIV. Yeah, I mean, this is making me think that, like, we really need to rewrite. I mean, maybe the history books are being taught this way now, but for all the the terror and gloom and doom of COVID, which is appropriate. I mean, it's a public health crisis. The 80s and 90s for that community was in many ways worse than COVID. 
I mean, I'm guessing you would probably agree with this. That, oh, yeah. yeah it, just in terms of the amount of terror and the amount of just death and suffering it inflicted on people. The pain. Yeah. You know, having your immune system shut down and contracting all of Everything. these opportunistic infections. Yeah. It was, and with no answers. And think about uh, many of these gay men, their parents didn't know they were gay. Yeah. And they were in the hospital dying and they had to come after their parents and then their parents would reject them and leave yeah. them alone by their oh, hospital. But I, it's a story that needs to be I mean, and I guess it has been told many times. It needs to be seen and heard yeah. uh, by people who are unaware. Even young gay people probably have no idea yeah. about what went on. But that definitely shaped me as an activist. Wow. I saw what ACT UP did. I saw the courage. Um, I saw the risks and, and how they did it. And so that influenced me yeah. when I became an activist. So did you know anyone who, who got sick, like personally? And- I, I did know people. Um, Largely through work. Through work, okay. Because I was, the, as I said, the liaison to the okay. AIDS activist community, and many of them had HIV AIDS, and so I did know people who died, and I did have a few friends and acquaintances who died. But if, as I said, if I had been five years older, it would have been everybody. Yeah. Or 10 years older, forget it. Yeah. And what convinced you, I mean, coming out at a time like this, that sounds like <laughs> terrifying and also maybe a little masochistic. Hmm. So, I mean, what made you think, oh, this is the right time for me to come out. Everybody's dying and everyone's terrified of gay people. Why don't I just tell everyone, by the way, I'm gay, you know? Well, it's an interesting question because at the time that I came out, I was in college and I wasn't surrounded by, you know, you heard about HIV AIDS, but this was before I was exposed to it personally, Okay, before I knew people who had HIV. And so this was just my personal struggle and not wanting to live a lie and walking around with this tremendous weight on my shoulders Interesting, and not wanting to live like that anymore. And, and at the time I said, if I can muster up the courage to come back to my parents, then I could do anything. Yeah. And, um, and they were very accepting. It was a different time. It was, you know, I'm from a small community in Miami beach where everybody knew each other and nobody else had done this that I was aware of. And, you know, there was no very little precedent for it in my, in my circles, in my immediate circles. And so it was, it was scary. But once I started to do it, I quickly learned it was the most powerful political thing that I could do yeah. was to just to come out yeah. and expose other people. Uh, I had, I so vividly remember one of my mother's friends saying to me, um, you know, I don't like gay people. I mean, I like wow. you, but I don't like gay people. And so Damn. it just, it just made me realize I have to come out yeah. to people who or generalizing or, yeah. or were just, I guess they were taught to be homophobic or did she, she <laughs> She said this to you. I mean, obviously, she said this to you personally after you came out. To her. And what did you say to her? I mean, what do you, how do you respond to that? Um, <laughs> I, I probably, you know, you have to judge each person as an individual. There yeah. are kind or awful people who are gay and straight. We don't, we don't make a decision about whether to like or dislike someone based on, you know, their color of their skin or their sexual sure. orientation or their gender or race or any of those things. Yeah. We judge people as individuals. What happened to that person? Does, does, does she still feel that way? <laughs> uh, like, you still in touch with her? She's dead. Okay. Um, but, uh, you know, I never had the discussion with her again. Have you changed your views? But I can't yeah. imagine that she wouldn't have. Yeah. Okay. You know, because I saw her over the years after that. And, you know, yeah. well, it was a non-issue. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the, the amount of change we've seen on this issue is, I mean, it's legendary in the history of social justice. I think the gay rights movement has a plausible case for being the most successful social justice movement in the history of maybe humankind. Because of the speed yeah. and because of 
the depths of the change that's been created. Because I don't, there, I feel like, for example, the civil rights movement created a lot of systemic change, but civil rights hasn't gone deep, especially into people on the other side. You know, there are a lot of folks who kind of like, all right, yeah, I guess we have to let, you know, people of color into our communities, but I still kind of don't like them. In, and I, I'm not saying there isn't still a lot of homophobia. There is. There's a lot of homophobia. There's a lot of transphobia. But I do think, and maybe it's because LGBTQ people are just part of our families, <laughs> you know, and they're, they're for a long time secretly, but they're our brothers, they're our sisters and their cousins. But the case that I'm thinking of, or two cases I'm thinking of are Rob Portman and Dick Cheney. Like these, for, for people on the left, these, you know, almost insidious figures who I think genuinely do believe in gay rights. Like Dick Cheney genuinely does because he's got a daughter. Rob Portman has a son who's yeah. gay and Dick Cheney's got a daughter who's gay, Mary Cheney. And it's, there's something about this movement that has really just reshaped not just human politics, but the human soul, right? That we understand this issue and, the, and, and this group of people in a way that we didn't before. That gives me so much hope for other sorts of change. Like it's, it's the power of coming out. That's why I yeah, it I think was it so is. important to come out. If yeah. Mary Cheney hadn't come out to her father, then Dick Cheney would not have been yeah, supportive changed. in the Bush administration. I don't know what he did for yeah. LGBT community when he was in the Bush administration. Not much. <laughs> I, don't, I don't think so. And I think people were angry at Mary because Mary said, you know, vote for my dad and we'll have gay rights. And yeah. that did not come to pass. And so I think she's was for a long time, maybe still as persona non grata in the yeah. LGBT community. Yeah, oh, that's interesting. So last, last thing about your history, and then I want to talk about the activism you're doing now and some of the work you're doing for chimps. Um, but Tell me about your experiences working for the pharmaceutical company. You kind of got into that a little bit, but I want to, I want to go into a little more depth because it sounds fascinating because here you are a gay man in the middle of the AIDS crisis coming out to your friends and family, and then you go to work for a pharmaceutical company. And why were they being protested by ACT UP and AIDS activists in the first place? And, and how did you feel about it? So tell me a little more about that. So I was still a kid, you know, I was right out of college basically. And I, um, had a, I was hired into a management training program at another pharmaceutical company called Sharing Plow. And I, then I met someone who said, you should really be doing, um, you should work on these AIDS drugs called protease inhibitors. You should be doing public affairs for that. You're a good communicator. You're a good writer. And I transitioned into public affairs and communications. And the company I work for was racing to the market with two other companies, Crick, um, uh, Merck and Abbott to launch the first protease inhibitor, which was these miraculous drugs that brought people back from the dead when combined with other drugs, it was a cocktail. And uh, the AIDS activists wanted to be sure that the companies were studying the drugs in all the right populations, that they weren't necessarily racing to market just to get the cleanest, easiest data. They wanted to be sure that the drugs were studied in the population, in populations of people of color, low socioeconomic class, you know, all women, because the easiest thing to do would have been to study them in gay white men. And so they would protest, they would meet with us about, about clinical trial designs, about pricing, about even about the way we were marketing the drugs, if they felt the marketing was unethical. And so there were some activists who were at the table with us, and then there were some activists who were outside protesting against us. Mm -hmm. And so I got to see how all of all of them worked. Mm -hmm. Why were they protesting? So I, I understand why the people were meeting with you because they 
you know, they want the drugs to be available and effective, obviously, and they want to make sure the pharmaceutical companies are taking it seriously. Were there particular decisions the company was making that were leading to activists to protest? And also, are these, by activists, are these primarily AIDS patients themselves or other people? Uh, these were probably primarily people with AIDS. Now, keep in mind, their ACT UP, you know, and the AIDS activist community was very big and it morphed over the years. And so my touch point with an actual being targeted by ACT UP when I worked at a drug company, that was very specific protest about the pricing of one very specific drug. Interesting. But there so they were, thought the price was too high, basically. That they thought that the price was too high. Okay. Yeah. And um, I don't know for sure, but if I had to guess, the company never even made recoup their investment off of that particular drug. Huh. I can't say, I don't, I don't even want to say the drug because I'm not sure if that's the case, but it was an extraordinarily complicated drug to manufacture. I went to the, I went to the manufacturing facility myself and I saw, and uh, extremely expensive drug to manufacture. Yeah. Uh, but it was a fortune. Uh, and so activists understandably protested. But activists protested at other companies for expanded access for, mm -hmm. you know, for to get to just to be able to, to to get that drug into bodies before it was FDA approved. And, you know, the that documentary film, How to Survive a Plague, has incredible footage of mm -hmm. activists sort of chaining themselves inside the lobby of a drug company and refusing to leave until they could have a discussion about accessing a, a particular drug. I mean, people were dying. They had nothing to lose. Was, yeah by, you know, by scaling the walls of the NIH and getting arrested. They had just had nothing to lose because they were dying and their friends were dying. Yeah. And Sorry, I laughed about that, but obviously, mm -hmm. I sh you know, it's, it, it was a terrible plague, but there were also just some ingenious tactics and creativity oh, yeah. and, and, and as you put it, bravery. And yeah, the NIH protests were an example. Did, did people do that sort of intense thing at your company? And how, how did you respond? Um, yeah, I mean, there were times over the years, and this could have even been before my time, where like our booth would have was trashed. Really, at an AIDS conference. You know, there every four years there was an international AIDS conference in another city, and you know, activists would trash our booth. But what, what does that mean exactly? Trashed? I mean, they're like kicking your table over? Are they? Yeah, <laughs> just yeah. You know, I wasn't in the booth at the time, but yeah, just kind of like toppling over tables and stuff like that. Wow. Um, you know. And I understand, you, you know, understand. people were so, people were so angry and the drug prices were high. Yeah. Probably a lot higher than they needed to be in some cases. And you understood mm -hmm. even then, like, well, I guess you had to have, I mean, you were, you were in many ways part of that same community. So. Except, right. I mean, I didn't have AIDS um, and I wasn't an AIDS activist. I wasn't any kind of activist, huh. but I, it was all very relatable to me. Yeah. You know, the people with whom, so, you know, we would have. Over the years, I, I did this job for many years, and we developed a drug for hepatitis C too. And a lot of people with HIV were co-infected with hepatitis, hepatitis C. So we would have these meetings with activists, co-infection activists. People were advocating on behalf of people with both HIV and hepatitis C. And we would have you know a big conference room at the office with maybe twenty or thirty activists around the table, and um, you know, and that was you know it was tense mm -hmm. um, and. They wanted to just, the drug company to do things that we couldn't do or criticize another company, for example. Yeah. Uh, go after another company that wasn't making their drug available to be used with our drug, things mm -hmm. like that. Um, but I learned so much about how to interact yeah. with industry from them. Yeah. 
Uh, it, it's different, though, that, you know, the animal rights movement is different in that, you know, in other social justice movements, people are fighting for themselves yeah. and their peers. In the animal rights movement, we're not fighting for ourselves. Yeah. We're fighting for someone else. And I think people are willing to take fewer risks yeah. because it's not quite as personal. Thank yeah. God there are people who are willing to take these extraordinary risks, like the DXE activists who, you know, how many felony counts do you have against you right I've now? i lost count. Yeah. <laughs> I don't so, know. Yeah. Uh, if everyone was as courageous as you, the animal rights movement would be far more advanced than it is today. Yeah, well, thank you for saying that. And, and I, I will say that whatever courage I have, 100% because of the support of people around me. And, and Donnie, you know, for those of you who don't know, Donnie started this platform called Their Turn. And long, long time ago, when no one in the animal rights movement, much less in the mainstream media, wanted to say a damn thing about this ratty grassroots group that's doing these you know, crazy things that are too intense and too radical, their turn was writing about us. And, and if not for the support of people like you, and, and not just people from media platform, I'm not just saying you have to have a website and, and be a communications person to do this. But I mean, you know, just people who made me dinner after I went to jail, you know, um, even my friends, like I, my first arrest was an accident. It wasn't courage. It was stupidity on my mm. part that got me arrested. What happened? Uh, this is in 2006, I think it was, and I was still a faculty member at Northwestern School of Law. I did not intend to be an animal rights activist. I thought I was going to be a law and economics professor studying global poverty. I'd gotten this amazing gig because a professor of mine, by, actually a couple of professors of mine, one Cass Sunstein, who's a very famous now Harvard Law professor, another Eric Posner, who's a University of Chicago Law School professor, got me this job that frankly I didn't deserve at Northwestern doing research on climate, on animals, on the law, on economics. And so I'm plugging away, getting this research, um, published a paper in the University of Pennsylvania Law Review. I'm thinking to myself, okay, things are going great. And then I'm doing a fur protest on my own time, because this is just something I thought was like a personal thing, not a future or a profession. And um, I'm leafleting outside of a Burberry about fur, because PETA had a campaign against Burberry at the time. And here I am, this law professor who had studied the First Amendment, who was actually you know, writing about the First Amendment, and a cop tells me, you can't be there on that street. And I know my First Amendment rights. Mm -hmm. I'm like, I'm a law professor. I mm -hmm. know the First Amendment gives me, in fact, the Constitution gives me a right to be here on the public way. This is kind of the classic First Amendment right that you're allowed to leaflet on a public way. But I didn't understand power. <laughs> right. And I didn't understand how the law can be corrupted. And I didn't understand that when there's a guy with a gun, at the end of the day, it doesn't matter what's written on a piece of paper. It matters who's got the power in this particular situation. And in this case, the guy with the gun had the power. And it turned out um, that cop was really good friends with the security guard who worked at Burberry because the security guard who worked at Burberry was off duty. He was a police officer who was working off duty security for Burberry. And the, you know, I basically said, I thought, well, I'm going to stand up for rights. I mean, what's the point of going to law school and being a law professor if I don't exercise the basic rights, including the First Amendment, the first of the Bill of Rights? So I say, uh, thank you, officer, but I have a right to be here. And he grabs me, he throws me on the ground, um, he tosses my leaflets and posters everywhere. I lost all of them. Were you by um, yourself? I was by myself at the time, unfortunately, because there was a protest scheduled for an hour later, but I always went early and left late and just leafleted because I wanted to talk to as many people as I could. Um, I was charged with a felony. So it was my first felony charge, resisting arrest. I thought my life was over. Um, in jail, I was like honestly thinking about killing myself. I was very, very scared because I just thought, 
everything I thought I was trying to achieve, everything in my future is now gone. I can almost, I mean, obviously oh. this is way too dramatic, but I can kind of understand what it felt like to be an AIDS activist to a certain extent and to feel in that situation. But in this case, it was the circumstances around me compel me to feel like this is over because I thought felony charge, I'm never going to be able to be a licensed attorney. Who the hell is going to hire me to teach law or economics or anything else? Um, but after I got out of jail, I, I, I didn't have a lot of friends then because um, I, much longer story, but I had very isolated, you know, socially awkward childhood. But some animal rights activists stepped up and because everyone showed up like an hour later and was like, where, where the heck is Wayne? He's disappeared. And there are no posters and leaflets. So they all just went home. And I don't remember how they all figured it out, but they all figured out I was in jail. And, you know, I, I had to walk like a long distance to my car. But when I got out of jail, there were a bunch of people who just like took me home and cooked me food and, you know, talked me through it and made sure I didn't go completely insane from the experience, which I might have had without friends. So, and I think this is, I, I don't want to speak for the actives involved in ACT UP, um, and I'm definitely experiencing the second and third hand, but I have talked to a lot of them. Um, uh, I've talked to Jim Harrison, who's made a documentary about ACT UP and was one of the people in the room, I think, that day when Larry Kramer said, you know, this is a plague and we need to start acting up. Larry Kramer is a very famous playwright who's known for launching the ACT UP movement at a place not too far from here, actually, right? It's the New York um, Gay and Lesbian Community Center. Right. And Jim Harrison was in that room. He was one of the early activists. And what he's told me is that the reason we were able to take these risks was because we had an amazing community. There are people stepping up left and right to support each other uh, because we all realize we're dying. There's nothing left and unless we help each other. And that's what they did. And it was a beautiful thing. And the same thing has been true for us. You know, the risks for us are a lot lower than the risks for the gay rights activists and the AIDS activists in the 80s and 90s. Um, but it's equally important, whether you're facing a felony charge or a plague that could kill you, that you've got people around you supporting you. And, and you know, you've been hugely supportive of me personally, and I just really appreciate that. Oh, it means well, a lot to me. It was, you know, I remember at the beginning, you know, when DXE first emerged, and I said to my friend Jane Velez Mitchell, are, do you, are you seeing what they're doing? This is extraordinary. This is the future of the movement. And uh, it was just so exciting. I was just so excited because I knew that so many more animals were going to be helped because of DXE. Um, what I just out of curiosity, that fall, that resisting arrest charge, that sounds like a, a, that was not correct. Yeah, it was bullshit. And they, <laughs> they dropped it. And I didn't, I didn't know this is how the criminal justice system often works, especially with activists, that they bring charges against you to scare you. Um, and the, the only resisting arrest I did was I, I like tried to pick up my leaflets as I was being tackled. And they said, this was resisting. You lifted your arm mm -hmm. and, and they threw all my leaflets away. And back then, I think <laughs> when you're an early activist getting your first, this is like one of the first campaigns I ever tried to organize myself. I'd hand out a lot of leaflets, but every time I got a big shipment of new leaflets and posters from PETA, it was like, ah, you know, you have this giddy feeling like, oh, it's validating. Yes, yes. No. And it feels like I have the tools I need. Finally, I can show people what's happening in these fur farms. And for those who don't know what happens at fur farms, like for me, one of my form of experiences is seeing animals being skinned alive in video footage. And I will say it's, it doesn't happen that often. It's, it's, it's unusual, but it, it has happened and it does happen. And it happens in slaughterhouses too, that, you know, animals go through experiences like this. Um, so it was a very, very emotional, important issue for me because, you know, dogs are my, my people. Like, they're not my animals. They're my people. Like, my, yeah. my, my dog was my sister. She was not my pet. Mm -hmm. She was not even my companion. My dog growing up was the only reason I made it through growing up in Indiana. 
swear to God, like I would have killed myself 100%, probably at like the age of nine, I would have killed myself without my dog. So seeing a dog, like, and I always identified every, and to this day, I identify for every dog. Like I see dogs, it's honestly a little too forward and I need to be a little more, you know, open to the idea that not every dog is my best friend, but I just see every dog and I think, you're my best friend. I'm the or same you're my way. Family member. Like it's just, I'm obsessed. Yeah, I'm obsessed with dogs. So seeing dogs hurt that way and then, and then feeling like, here's my opportunity. Like I'm going to stop dogs and other animals like dogs from being skin alive. And then seeing that all collapse when my leaflets and posters are taken, because I didn't even realize I was getting arrested at first. I just thought, why are you grabbing me? Why are you tossing my leaflets on the ground and taking my posters away? And so I just reached out, charged me with a felony for resisting arrest. Um, I remember being in, in the cops, like some of the cops were pretty nice to me. And I remember one cop in particular just talking to me and saying, you know, why'd you do it? And I said, but I didn't do anything. <laughs> it's like, and, but you know, I didn't understand what he was telling me was not, why did you resist arrest? Cause I didn't, but he was basically saying, why did you resist authority? Why did you even protest? Just go back, do the thing you're doing. Because they, they quickly realized, they, they looked through my ID and they saw, oh, this guy's a professor at Northwestern. And so I remember there was a cop. It was like, really kind, friendly guy. And, and this, this is, is in the precinct now. This is, this is when I'm getting booked and you know, okay. put in jail. And I remember like, he took me to go, because I said, I need to pee. And he, he was like, nice enough to like, unhook me. Because you, know, mm -hmm. you got your hands behind your backs yeah. and you're hooked up. So it's kind of hard to pee. You know, uh -huh. I went through the same thing. Yeah. So it's like, how am I going to pee? My hands are behind my back. I uh -huh. can't, you know, get to the business. So he said, all right, I'll, I'll unhook you and I'll take you to the bathroom so you can pee when I'm getting booked. Really friendly guy. And this actually, this is a good story. And I don't think I've told the story, but it's a good story of how the mainstream and the authorities shape you to comply. Because he is being incredibly friendly to me. And I don't think this is intentional. This is not some sort of manipulation. Um, and he, they know I'm a professor. They know, you know, I just graduated from law school and I've got this great future ahead of me. And he's telling me, like, why'd you do it? Why'd you do it? And, and um, I said, I didn't do anything. I just, I just wanted people to know. I wanted this corporation to be held accountable for these crimes. I mean, these are crimes what they're committing. And he said, he said to me, it's not worth it. You've wow. got a great future ahead of you. It's not worth it. You, you've got to change things up. But this, use this as a teaching moment. And so he's basically trying to teach me that even for just exercising my rights, which I was doing, man, I was just leafleting to people. I was not doing DXC style stuff. I was such a passive, timid activist at this point. I mean, it was first protest I went to, uh, which was a few years before that. I was like so scared of being at the protest. Like I hid behind my poster and was shivering the entire time. And I'd worked up the confidence to the point that by 2006, when I got arrested, I was able to do that. But it still did not feel comfortable to me to, to thrust myself into that situation and put myself out there on the line and talk to people about these issues because I was, you know, a conservative Chinese kid who just wanted to do the right thing and wanted people to like me. And I've got this cop telling me, you've gone in the wrong direction. And he, and he was, he was gen, I could tell he was genuinely just trying to help me. Um, and it, honestly, if I didn't have that support network around me again, uh, who of, of people tell me, no, I mean, you did the right thing. Like it's the system that's gone wrong. Like you, first of all, you did the right thing in terms of standing up for your civil rights because people should have the right to speak freely and you shouldn't get arrested and charged with a felony just because you're handing out leaflets. But also, and you, you should did... be a voice for the voice. You know? Exactly. You know, yeah. you, you know, they, they, and I, like, I was too embarrassed. I didn't even tell. Actually, I, to this day, I have some friends on the faculty at Northwestern. I don't know if they know I got arrested when I was, yeah. and I got charged with a felony when I was supposedly teaching kids law, you know? You should have gone to them for help. To, I, to, I was too scared. Yeah. You know, actually, yeah, I've got, um, 
a colleague named Kenworthy Bills, who um, Crystal heard this, that she just wrote an email to a guy at the University of Denver Law Review. Super nice email. He, and she apparently loves my activism, but she was like one of my best friends in the faculty at Northwestern. And she's vegan and an animal rights supporter. I don't even think I even told her I got arrested because I was so scared that I was ashamed. I was totally ashamed wow. that, that this is going to ruin my reputation. I'm done. I'm gone. But, but the absolute key thing was I had friends who still supported me and who said, no, you did the right thing. Don't listen to the cop. Don't be scared by this. Don't just abandon the movement because of the, these personal fears. And so I was able to keep doing it. And, and in fact, it, it, it almost pushed me in the opposite direction because while well, I was initially scared, I'm like shivering. It was, ter- it was super cold that day. It was freezing cold in Chicago. It was in the winter. It was like in December. I think it was like December of 2016 or maybe January of 2017. Um, it was super cold. Uh, I, I'm shivering. And... Um, and and I, while well, I could have been really afraid and just gone in the other direction and given everything up, instead I said, okay, this, this teaches me that I can experience this and keep fighting. Like, I'm not afraid anymore. And, and that's been really important in my entire life. And, and this is another one of the reasons why I think a lot of times you think attributes like empathy and braver are inborn to people, but a lot of times I think it's almost that they're thrust upon you. I think my compassion was thrust upon me by the fact that I had no human beings who were my friends. I think my bravery was thrust upon me because I was arrested at a time when I was very vulnerable. And, and cause when you're a young faculty member, you're scared shitless of mm. anything. Like a, a senior professor looks at you the wrong way. Tenure is so hard to get at these elite universities and one faculty member can totally torpedo your career. So you're very frail and you're very vulnerable. And then something like this happens a to you. Yeah. A felony, which is like, this is not just a kind of a, annoyed glance by a senior faculty member this is the end of my career and going through those experiences and knowing you can get out on the other end and not only get on the other end but be stronger from it is absolutely crucial um and again that doesn't happen without support so anyways how do we even get on this tangent you asked me about my first arrest uh, yeah and you know it's it's a little bit relatable to me because you know i was arrested in 2019 in january uh. and it, the circumstances were a, a somewhat similar I was protesting a city health official um, who uh, was had the power to shut down Kaporos. As far as I was concerned, the the deputy director of disease control for the city of New York. And for years, we had been saying to this person, you know, you really need to enforce the health codes and shut down Kaporos. And Kaporos is to tell people about Kaporos. Oh, okay, we haven't referenced that yet, and a yeah. lot of people are not going to know. But say briefly what Kaporos so is and tell Kapor- us about this. Kaporos protest. is top of mind because it's happening this week between uh, between the uh, on the week between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. Uh, Ultra Orthodox Jews, you know, hundreds of thousands of them around the world, but not all of them will partake in this ritual slaughter whereby they say a prayer to transfer their sins to a live chicken, swing the chicken around their heads a few times, and then slaughter the chicken. And their sins go away with the dead chicken. I'm, I'm not ex- describing it exactly right, but that's sort of close enough for, for this purpose. And Can I ask one quick question about yeah. that that I've never known the answer to? And this is a great chance for everyone to be educated. Why do they swing the chicken around? What does that do? Why don't uh, they just transfer the sins and well, you know, I, I think a lot of people uh, swing coins. I don't know huh. why they actually do a swinging, huh. um, but but yeah, they they literally hold, like wave this chicken around their heads three yeah. times, um, some more violently than others, and they're saying a prayer while they're doing it, huh. and then they 
are supposed to bring the chicken to a, one of these pop-up slaughterhouses that are erected on public streets without permits, which is totally surreal. And then the chicken gets slaughtered and, and you know, nine times out of 10 dumped in the garbage and, and hauled off by the Department of Transportation. And so for years, we've been protesting Kapouros year-round, mm-hmm. uh, trying to get city health officials to 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 enforce the health codes because seven city health codes are violated. You can't just erect a pop-up slaughterhouse yeah. on the sidewalk in front of your apartment building and kill 10,000 chickens. 10,000 on th- one sidewalk? Oh, yeah, easily. 10,000? I had no idea. It was that scale. Well, we I mean, asked that must him, take all day. Well, this goes on throughout the course of a week. There are 30 different sites um, but there are some sites that are huge where there probably are 10,000 at some sites. Okay. So uh, we're going to Williamsburg today where we'll probably visit two or three different sites with thousands of chickens at each uh. one. And I don't know if they'll be, they're going to be slaughtered in the moment or uh, each site operates a little bit differently. The point is, if this shouldn't be happening at all, not only because it's horrifically cruel, not only because this is a breeding ground for the next pandemic, you know, with a zoonotic disease, you know, jumping from from one of these sick. I mean, if you have tens of thousands of sick chickens intensively confined in crates, if their viruses that they harbor mutate, commingle and mutate into a strain that could, you know, tra- be transmitted to humans, there could be another pandemic, an avian yeah. flu. Yeah, and huge clutches of human beings right next to it. Right, this would spread this uh, uh, some sort of disease out. It would spread like wildfire before anybody even knew they were infected. It is the largest live animal market in the country, and the only one in which the customers actually physically handle the animals. Yeah, yeah. it's surreal. Anyway, for years, can can I just insert one other thing too? Just factually. I think the the best scientific evidence now sh- suggests we can't prove this definitively because you know it was so long ago that the great flu of 1918 probably came from avian origin and and one of the hypotheses was that it came from a chicken farm in the United States. So this is not just a hypothetical thing. It right. very likely did kill potentially tens of millions of people in 1918, which was right. a pandemic much worse than COVID-19. So right. anyways, but continue and your swine story. flu, it's, I mean, yeah. any farm animal. Farm could... animals have been absolutely, and every scientist, you know, there's a great report by the Pew Center at Johns Hopkins on, on, on pandemics saying that animal agriculture is one of the greatest risks. And the UN has said the same thing, WHO, CDC, they all say. Actually, if you Google CDC pandemic right now, You'll see a bunch of pandemics in the United States history. Like there's obviously 1918, 19, I think it's, uh, there was one in 1956, 1967. And 100%, 100% of the pandemics listed on the CDC's pandemic page came from animal agriculture. Like, and they, this is in the CDC's own language. This is not me interpreting the CDC's own language. They say, this one came from a chicken farm. This one came from a pig farm. But I just wanted to insert that factually because I think it's so important for people to know. But continue your story. So huge risks. You're going out to protest. And tell me about the protest. Actually, does cop, why does cop roast happen year round? I thought it was just. It's one. No, it takes place one week a year. But oh, we were protesting year, year round in okay. an attempt to stop it from happening the, the, uh, in the upcoming year. I see. Okay. So this is now before COVID, before we had even another reason to, yeah, shut, to down shut down all these. Kaporos, uh, we, were, we were protesting inside the lobby of the Department of Health, which I okay. guess is a form of civil disobedience because we were refusing to leave this building. Yeah. And we would do these die-ins. And one year we brought in dead chickens that were, you know, there are thousands of dead chickens in the streets yeah. after Kaporos. We would bring in dead chickens in the lobby. It was 
all very you know dramatic to try and get people's attention. The Department of Health completely blew us off. Yeah, nothing to see here. And the reason is because, and you know, people don't like to hear it, but the the practitioners of Kapoor's represent an extraordinarily powerful voting block mm-hmm. in New York City, and so elected officials move mountains to do help them in any way they can. And even this, if it breaks the law, there the, are we aid the New York City aids and abets in these crimes mm-hmm. by providing floodlights barricades, a police presence, you know, traffic cones where they bleed the chickens out into the streets. Uh, And so, uh, and the Department of Health, you know, reports into the mayor Mm -hmm. and, and, you know, the mayor, the governor, they all want this, this vote. And so they do whatever they can to curry favor with this community. And I think one of the reasons for this is because that, that voting block is, is solid. You know, they will all vote together and they'll vote for whoever their leadership says, these are the people who you should vote for. And they all just, you know, they work together. They, right. They're very unified. Right. It's an important lesson for all of us, honestly. So in a, unity. But anyways, go ahead. On a national level, they were all voted for Trump. And locally, yeah. they all voted for last time de Blasio. Yeah. Um, and so they get what they want yeah. um, because of the power of the voting block. And so we, so the, the deputy commissioner of disease control for the city of New York, his name is Dimitri Daskalakis. He's now at the CDC, but at the time he was working at the Department of Health. He ignored us at the Department of Health. He owned a spin studio, hmm. a cycling studio, and we decided to protest there mm-hmm. to get his attention. Uh, maybe he would pay attention to us there. And so uh, his, uh, we, we went into the lobby of the spin studio, did a few laps around the lobby with our posters, mm-hmm. and, and, then, and then exited. And his husband... Uh, grabbed my post my case of my posters and i was trying to get them back and i ultimately did get them back and we left and that was the end of it uh a week later we went back just to protest out front not to go in the lobby and there was a i don't know 10 police Mm -hmm. waiting for me a special squad of the nypd i can't remember you know the um you know investigations unit or you know uh and they arrested me and took me to the precinct Mm. and then it was, I was, I guess I was charged with assault. I had, there were four charges and one of them was assault. I never assaulted anybody. I've never assaulted anybody. It's not in my DNA to assault somebody. And, um, I was falsely accused of assault. And not only did they, they bring me to the precinct, they then transferred me to the tombs downtown Mm. And, which was so unnecessary. Normally, they book you in at the precinct and, I guess, give you a desk appearance to show up in court. Yeah, yeah. They took me to the tombs, and on the way down, the police admitted that this was way above, yeah. you know, their, you know, interesting... What, what is the tombs? For, the, for, those, for those of the So the tombs is cent- central the tombs. booking. Yeah. It's this horrible place that I think will eventually, like, kind of like Rikers Island, there's, mm-hmm. like, a push to close them down because they're so awful. Mm-hmm. And um, so I was thrown in the tombs for 11 hours. So it's like a jail before, cell. Before my, it's a jail cell. Yeah. And I was put there before my arraignment where the, you know you plead and then mm-hmm. you, know, you get out. And I ended up spending months in court fighting these charges and a fortune. And, but it was, it was a politically motivated arrest. Yeah. And a city official used his power to have me falsely arrested for, yeah, I mean, if they wanted to arrest me for trespassing, I did trespass. I was in the lobby of the spin studio, sure. um, but I didn't commit assault. Yeah. 
and the other assault charges. I mean, there were. Was this a felony or misdemeanor assault? Do you remember? I don't remember. I don't remember. I don't remember if the assault was felony or misdemeanor. Uh, And ultimately, I got an adjournment in contemplation of dismissal in ACD, but it took months and thousands of dollars to get get there. And uh, it was just such a gross misuse of power, not unlike the. Burberry's using an off-duty police officer yeah. to tell his pal to yeah, arrest you. Yeah. It was just a, a, just a gross use of, of power. Yeah. And I didn't feel like I had recourse. I yeah. mean, I, I wanted to go to trial so that there could be discovery and I could show the evidence because yeah, it was yeah. all captured on camera. Yeah. Um, but that would have meant thousands of dollars, dollars yeah. in additional legal. Oh, probably tens of thousands, honestly, to go to trial. Yeah. It's, and it's I was never going to get that money back. Yeah. The most that would have happened would, would have been that the charges would have been dismissed. But I, you know, was there an opportunity there to get the deputy commissioner of disease control on the stand yeah. to testify? Or maybe that wouldn't have had to, maybe the court wouldn't have said that was necessary. So, because yeah. it was unrelated to, you know, the assault or the yeah. alleged assault, I should say. Yeah. No, there's, there's this weird phenomenon. And I was actually talking to Crystal about this just a day or two ago in the car, but where power distorts the world around us, it distorts the way you see things. It distorts the rules. It even distorts our ethical systems. And, and I, I want to say like, it's, it's, I'm not saying this glibly, like the powerful people are all to blame because all of us have power in different contexts. And it's really important for us to use our power in a way that recognizes this, this, but both of us had this personal experience where technically we have, a system where the rules are set by by law and not by the subjective whims of the individual. Like mm. we don't live in a dictatorship or a tyranny or you know divine right of kings. <laughs> That's what it feels like in those yeah, moments. It does, doesn't yeah. it? it you, you feel like we've evolved beyond the point where you know a few hundred years ago when we believed in the divine right of kings, whatever mm. like Louis the Fourth in mm-hmm. France said, "You will die. You will mm-hmm. be my slave. You mm-hmm. are going to be my concubine." You just kind of had to do it. That was how we decided what was right. Now we like to think of ourselves as a more evolved civilization where we collectively decide our rules. Those rules are then enforced against everyone equally. It's like, no, that doesn't happen. We're still very, very far from that. Um, And it's one of the reasons why it is so important, so important. And this is not just me saying this. This is literally every political scientist that I'm aware of. And this political scientist on the right, political scientist on the left, doesn't matter. Anyone who studied politics understands that you have to have as a safety mechanism, openness to civil disobedience. That civil disobedience is a way, it's like almost like a sanity check on the system. And, and we should know this more than, frankly, any country, because this country was born from civil disobedience. Like you talk, think about the Tea Party, you think mm. about the American Revolution. These are people who said, something has gone wrong in our system. Taxation without representation, you know, um, colonial governments that are not representing the people who live here. They're representing big corporations like the, you know, the British East India Company. So we have to revolt. I mean, they literally violently revolted. And, and we lionize them and say, wasn't this such a beautiful thing? But in today's world, even people engage in minor rule-breaking activity like you, when it's being used against a powerful person, are punished and terrorized and intimidated. And one of the worst things about this is I imagine you felt a lot of fear and actually were kind of terrorized by that experience, right? Because it's, 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 not, it's not a fun thing to be accused of a violent crime. And then they turn around and they say, we're terrorists. <laughs> right. That's almost the worst part about it. It's like you do these things to intimidate and scare people. And, and sometimes like 
when they passed laws like the Animal Enterprise Terrorism Act, which has made it a terrorism offense to engage in any sort of property damage, physical property damage, I should say, of an animal enterprise. When you read kind of the legislative materials about this, when you listen to the media accounts of some of the legislators who supported this legislation, like Dianne Feinstein, my senator, unfortunately, it's very clear they're trying to scare people. And so they're intimidating and scaring people from doing the things they think are right, the things that we should be doing, because it's embodied in our very DNA as a country that sometimes you have to do what's right, even if it breaks the rules, and then accusing us of exactly what they're doing, which is terrorizing people. Right. In you this know? case, we were literally just asking the city to enforce its own Laws. health yeah. codes. I or mean, even it, just talk to you all. Like, it sounds like they were not even willing to talk to you, right? Yeah, at the very beginning of the campaign, uh, the commissioner of the health department, who ended up resigning over Kaporos, mm-hmm. not because she was angry that it was going on, but because she couldn't stand the protests, uh, she said to a group of activists in a meeting that she only agreed to have because we, we disrupted one of her speaking engagements at Columbia School of Public Health. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was the very first action we took in this campaign about um, 10 activists showed up at a lecture being given by the head of the health department. Her name was Mary Bassett. Mm-hmm. And she, uh, this was a lecture to, I don't know, a few hundred students in a big lecture hall. And as she started, we got up one by one. I think this, I feel like I learned this tactic from DXC. Yeah. Uh, one by one and did speak outs. Uh-huh. And we held up our posters and people in the audience or the students were stunned. Wow. And just as, you know, they were trying to corral me out. I was the one who went first. The next person popped up. Nice. And the next person and the next person. It was super dramatic. It was all caught on camera. And then we all marched onto the stage and we refused to leave until she agreed to meet with us. And so she, to get us out of there, agreed to meet. And to her credit, she did meet with us. I I happen to not have been at that meeting, but at that meeting, uh, she basically said there are no... um, health signals associated with this practice there are no you know we don't see any disease signals it's still which is not true there was a toxicology report that Mm -hmm. showed that act of a renowned toxicologist put together took fecal samples and blood samples from the streets and and stated unequivocally that this poses a significant public health hazard she chose to ignore that anyway that was the first in a very long campaign in which we targeted her at her speaking engagements until she was going to enforce the health codes. Mm-hmm. We were, you know, we, we, we protested, we disrupted a major conference at the Hilton Hotel, a global uh, a public health conference. There was security everywhere because mm-hmm. they anticipated us and we came in through like the, the housekeeping entrance, like under the <laughs> stage, we were like scaling a wall. It was, they were stunned that we got in and she had to abandon her speech Wow, and leave. Yeah. Uh, and anyway, it was such an impactful, powerful pressure campaign that the city realized they've got to shut this down mm-hmm. um, because uh, at some point there is going to be a problem. Kapoor is going to lead to some sort of disease outbreak yeah. and there's going to be all of this evidence that we moved mountains to get the city just to do its job yeah I, they just wanted to shut it down um and i think that's where the that, that that's part of the reason why they made this arrest also because this guy didn't want his for-profit spin studio yeah to be affected. to be affected by our protests yeah so for him maybe that was the you know that was the last the tipping point so have you talked to that guy the the deputy health commissioner and you said he works for the cdc now yeah, so uh, he, um, we tried to talk to him in the lobby of the Department of Health, but he would literally turn Just his ignore. nose up at us and walk, yeah. walk away, have video footage of him walking right by us, refusing to engage. Yeah. And, um, and no, we've never had a discussion with him. 
Yeah. He's just completely ignored us. Honestly, that's one of the lessons that all of us should take anytime you're in a situation of power. And I don't, I don't care if it's power of an employee, and I don't care if you're Jeff Bezos or you've got a business of three people and you're the boss, or it's power of your kids as a parent, you know, or even power over your dog. And that is that if you, one way you can know you're not using your power ethically is if you're not willing to talk to those who you have power over. Right? When you're turning your nose away from the people you have power over, that's a good sign that something has corrupted you. You know, and I think that's a really important lesson for all of us, but it also a way for us to assess whether power is being used justly. Because if power can't be transparent, if they can't come to you and say, okay, here's my perspective, let me hear your perspective and justify what they're doing, that's a sign that they're doing something that's wrong. Yeah. And, and, you know, and it's, it's so egregious, the idea that we have, you know, a couple dozen pop-up slaughterhouses erected on public streets in yeah. residential neighborhoods without permits where hundreds or thousands of animals are being slaughtered and bled out onto the streets. And yeah. then the Department of Sanitation is picking up in the big black garbage bags filled with dead animals. Yeah, yeah. It's surreal. And, you know, a couple of years ago, oh, actually, one of the candidates running for mayor, Catherine Garcia, you know, and she lost. Eric Adams won the Democratic primary. But she said when she was interviewed by a media outlet, what's the strangest thing that you've seen as the head of the Department of Sanitation? Yeah. And she said, the strangest thing I've seen is this, this bags of dead chickens, chickens on yeah. the side of the highway, where I guess, you know, in cases where the Department of Sanitation wasn't picking it up, the, one, of the, one or more of the Kaporo sites was literally tossing bags of dead chickens out onto the side of the road. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, I mean, it, it, like, it's, it, it's strange, too, because I, I had an experience recently where my, my roommate, actually, is Matt Johnson, he just left out a rug uh, on our yard in our house. And like our landlord came to us and said, oh, you, you got to move the rug. You can't leave a rug. It's like, you know, nondescript rug just in outside of our house. And this is our land. You know, we're renting the place and there's just a little rug. So that was considered too obtrusive. She said the neighbors are complaining. You know, we don't want to get the authorities involved. It's like, um, so you, leaving out a rug is going to get you in trouble. But again, I'm laughing, but it's, it's disturbing. Slaughtering thousands of animals with feces and cages and blood right. everywhere. You know, it sounds like this is just happening on public streets where children can see this. That is considered completely fine. The children are participating in it. Participating in it. They're wow. they're the ones yanking the chickens, chickens out of their crates, pinning their their yeah. wings back behind their their backs. You know, and you'll you're going to see it today because we're going after this. But um, these chickens are held in these crates for days at yeah. a time without food for or water. More. Yeah, stacked one on top of each other. You know, in these crates, stacked. One. It, it is the agony that they endure. For days on end. I mean, I just wish they would all die right now so they didn't have to suffer, suffer anymore. Yeah. And there is a, a large rescue operation that takes place and hundreds of these chickens will be saved. Yeah. But it's a small number relative to the at least 100,000. How did these animals get saved? Tell me more about that to the extent you can. <laughs> uh, yeah, to the extent that I can. Well, I was at, um, you know, sometimes chickens get loose and yeah. run off. Sometimes people take chickens home in a box and do caporos at home. Huh. Because there might be an elderly person at home who can't come to the Kaporo site, and then they'll just like leave that chicken in a box outside, just wow. leave them there. Um, and sometimes without uh, slaughtering them, they just leave a chicken. Yeah, you know, they spin the chicken around, and maybe they do the ritual, and then they just, just like put the, the box chicken. in front of their house, or just like yeah. Wow. There have been many instances where we've you just, just found, found chickens chicken. in boxes outside. Uh, they these crates are un, unattended overnight. And they're left out in public streets. Wow. There could be thousands of chickens unattended to. And I mean, I've gone at 3 a.m. and given watermelon and water and ice cubes on top of the crates when it's mm -hmm. been hot out. And um, they're just unattended. 
And if you happen to have a station wagon, there are all of these chickens that nobody's claiming, you know, so hundreds get hundreds get saved. I mean, thousands would get saved were not for the fact that there just isn't room at the sanctuaries. Sure. Yeah. And yeah. And it's expensive. They need vet care. There's a triage center. Yeah. It's it's a massive undertaking to do these rescues. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, I'm shout out to all the activists for doing this. And the Alliance to End Chickens is Kaporos United Poultry Concerns. Phenomenal work. Yeah, that's amazing. That's amazing. Are you getting any support from the larger organizations in this campaign? Is uh, n- not, really. not really. I mean, this is just almost entirely grassroots. Yeah. Look, I, I mean, PETA. PETA is extraordinary. They're always willing to help behind the scenes, even when they can't, you know, invest a ton of money or put their name on something. You know, they have people at PETA who just help behind the scenes with wanting no credit at all. Um, and they've done that over the years. Um, but no, none of the big groups get involved in this. Jewish Veg helps okay. do outreach in the streets to the people partaking in the ritual. That's awesome. And um, and no, United Poultry Concerns. That's, okay. yeah. Yeah, actually, I mean, that. I want to ask one last question about this, which is just raising the counterpoint to these protests that I think has probably been the one that is most damaging to the campaign. And I think it's useful for you in particular to speak to this. I mean, what do you do with the allegation this is anti-Semitic? First of all, I just want to back up and say it's not really protests anymore. For years, we protested with posters and chanting and loud and all of the typical things when you think of as an animal rights protest. We do chicken care. Mm-hmm. We're not protesting. We don't have posters. We don't have leaflets. We are literally going with watermelon in bags and sticking the watermelon into the crates to give these yeah. chickens a little bit of nourishment and relief for a moment. Uh, so it's not protests. Uh, yeah, I mean, anytime people challenge this community, they cry anti-Semitism. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I'm Jewish. Many of the activists uh, who participate in the chicken care vigils or the organizers, the rescuers are Jewish. We're not anti-Semitic. We're anti-cruelty. And, you know, we're not going to stop doing this because people allege that this is an anti-Semitic activity. Mm-hmm. Do you feel like there's been an effective strategy to, to counter the way they've been trying to caricature you? I mean, is it, are you trying to, for example, have Jewish people be the spokespeople for the campaign? What are the things you're doing? Well, yeah. The, so, and, okay. so, you know, it used to be that we would, there are different sects of ultra-Orthodox Jews, Haredi Jews, Hasidic Jews. They're d- different, you know, different descriptions. So in, in Brooklyn, you've got three different neighborhoods, Williamsburg, Crown Heights, and Borough Park. Those are the three big neighborhoods where you've got tens of thousands of Hasidim living in close quarters. And, um, only really in only one of the neighborhoods do the Hasidim really want to interact with us and debate with us. Huh. And that's the, the called Chabad Lubavitch community. There are Chabad houses all around the world. Maybe people are familiar with that term where they're doing outreach. They want people who are secular Jews like me to become more religious. Hmm. They bring you in the other neighborhoods. They just want to be left Not alone. They want to do their own thing. They want to, you know, increase their numbers by having as many children as possible. Uh, one of the organizers uh, in the Alliance 10 Chickens is Kaporo. She was the first one out in the street like 20 years ago. Her name is Rena Dietz. She's sort of the founder of this whole sort of movement to help these chickens. She said that her neighbor has 19 children. Wow. And so uh, they are told from early on, these children, that these birds are the lucky ones, these chickens mm-hmm. who get to be used in Kaporos, that when they're taken out of the crates, and we know that they're crying out in agony, when their p- wings are pinned behind the back, they're told that the chickens are singing. Mm. And so wow. from the earliest age, they're told that w- that this is what's happening and that anybody who on the outside who's telling you otherwise mm-hmm. is anti-Semitic. 
Wow. So it's hard to, it's hard to, to debate with that. It's hard to fight with that. Um, they really believe that what they're doing is, is what God wants and what these chick, what's good for these chickens. So it's, it's, so that's why Jewish veg are, they're equipped to have these discussions, whereas mm-hmm, mm-hmm. we aren't really equipped to have these discussions. There's nothing yeah. we are going to say that are con- going to convince them. Stuff, yeah. That's why we stopped protesting because in that, those communities, what we learned over the years is the more you tell them not to do something, the, the more they'll dig in their heels. Yeah. I'd have people say to me, I wasn't using chickens. I was using coins, but because of these protests, I'm going to start using a chicken. Wow. Yeah. Interesting. Well, we're, we're getting to the point where we have to start preparing to go to one of these vigils very shortly. So I want to make sure we talk about maybe the campaign that at least publicly you're most known for, which is advocating for chimps, including advocating for chimps that are unfortunately being misused by others in the animal movement. And, and that's a tricky situation and a, a tense situation and a difficult, complex situation that I want to give you a chance to talk about. But tell me, tell me about... First, before we even talk about the campaign, how did you get interested in chimps in the first place? So, you know, I, I've always loved um, great apes. I've always uh-huh. been fascinated by them, but it wasn't my fascination with them that drove me to advocate okay. on their behalf. In 2015, the biggest blood bank in probably the country, the New York Blood Center, abandoned 66 chimpanzees on islands in Liberia, the country, mm-hmm. you know, West African country, with no food or, or water. They had done experiments on about 500 chimps in Liberia, chimps who they captured in in the uh, forest and who they bred in captivity. And they made a commitment that when they were done with these research experiments in Liberia, that they would... Uh, they would put the save the, the the ones who were left and put them on islands and and create a sanctuary for them. Can you walk that back a little bit? Why yeah. is the New York City Blood Center in Africa kidnapping chimps? I mean, I know. It's you, so what crazy. is the connection? I mean, what are they? I mean, how did this even start? I, yeah, I mean, there there's a Vice movie called um, Monkey Island that uh-huh. people can learn a lot more about it than okay. we have time to talk about here. But the long and short of it is that the Blood Center wanted to do animal research okay. in chimpanzees. And they realized that it would be easier for them to do so in Liberia, which had a population of wild chimpanzees that were easily accessible, accessible. than it would be to do the, those research experiments here. It would be more expensive. There would be more regulation, more oversight, more mm-hmm. protest. There was a, a lab, a government lab in Liberia on the outskirts of the, of the capital, which is Monrovia, that was not being used. And so the New York Blood Center retrofitted this lab in order to be able to do the experiments they wanted to do. They sent over a team of researchers and hired locals to go into the, the forest, kidnap chimpanzees. And to do that, they have to shoot the adults and, mm-hmm. and take the babies. Do they uh, kill the? They kill. They kill the yeah, they, they kill they, the they adults. They, 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 the adults and they, they steal the and children. They steal, wow. steal the babies. That and is then, so disturbing. Yeah. So for every you know baby chimp who you know you see in somebody's house, probably like ten adult chimps were killed. Kill. So that wow. so that that poacher could sell the baby. Uh, and so when when was this that the New York City Blood Center decided they started to do this, this in the seventies? Seventies. Okay. Uh, went from the 70s to the 90s. They okay. were in Liberia for about 20 years with this commitment to provide the survivors with lifelong care on these six mangrove islands in a nearby river. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so... so in, Nice of them after killing the parents. You know, right. Well, no, the, like, the ones on these islands were probably bred in captivity. Oh, I see. Okay. Yeah. Many of them. Some of them might have been born in the wild. And, okay. Uh, but there, there are chimps there that are, you know, probably 50 years old. Um, and so 
in 2015. I didn't know that any of this had happened. This wasn't part of, I just didn't know about it. But the New York Times ran a a very long, thorough story about the New York Blood Center abandoning the chimps. In other words, after they were done with the research in the 90s, they hired locals to deliver food and water by boat Mm -hmm. every day. Once, I'm sorry, once every other day to Mm -hmm. deliver food and water to these chimpanzees. So let me just clarify. So you sure. got you got this lab on an island. No, the lab's not on the okay. island. The lab's on the mainland. So then, and then after they're done experimenting on the chimps, they what are the experiments being performed on them? For uh, they were they were like doing diseases? biopsies, hepatitis. They were doing uh, tropical disease research and hepatitis research. Okay, so they're probably injecting and made a with billion pathogens. dollars in profits off of wow. the research that they conducted. Okay. By the way, and and so so as they were done as they were done using the chimps the survivors they were transferring onto these six mangrove islands okay nearby half an hour away in the 1990s they make this promise and say you know given that we've made a billion dollars off these chimps and probably infected them with all sorts of deadly diseases and which is totally different story right we're going to give them lifetime care on these islands and then every okay and so this is kind of when you come to the story and the New York Times comes to the story, because supposedly they're giving them lifetime care, dropping food and what. And so these are just islands with just wild islands. Are there other chimps there? And, no, these you know, are, these are, these are abandoned these islands. These are just small islands small in, islands. in, in the Farmington river, uh, which is just a river in Liberia that happened to be near where the New York blood center was conducting these research. studies. Okay. And, uh, the New York Blood Center, they might have had to do a little work, like topography work, to make the islands work. I'm not, but okay. they were too small to do. To the, people say, well, why can't why can't they, you know, grow fruits Fruit and vegetables to, yeah. to feed the chimps? It wasn't going to happen. Yeah. They're small. The geography island. is such that Didn't, it's just not wouldn't, possible. Wouldn't have worked. Soil. Okay. Yeah. And m- mind you, mangrove islands are not their natural habitat. Chimps yeah. are in a forest where there's a high canopy, and yeah, the, yeah. so this was not their natural habitat. This was not an ideal place for them to go. Yeah. What is a mangrove? A mangrove is like, um, it's like a vegetation, sort a of low vegetation. Oh, so it's like a, not a tree. It's like a bush kind of thing. Kind of more like bushes, okay. yeah. Uh, and there are some trees on the islands, but they're mangrove Sunday. islands. Okay. You know, this is sort of an aside, but like I think part of the reason Hurricane Katrina destroyed New Orleans was because like the mangroves, this is what I read in the paper years ago, the mangroves are, you know, they're taken away and are destroyed for development. Hmm. And so all these natural barriers mm-hmm. that so might have protected New Orleans water, yeah. were not there. Yeah, interesting. Um, and so, so the chimps were relocated to these mangrove island, islands. The New York Blood Center was paying locals to provide food and water every other day. So the boat, the maybe a vehicle, and the food and water. And that was Because there's it. no other food available for them. Right, they on these islands. They're 100% dependent on humans. Yeah. Not, and of course, there was no vet care yeah, yeah. or no you know, enrichment or none of the other things that, ch- that chimps who were raised in captivity would need. Yeah. And again, it wasn't even their natural habitat. Sure. And so they they don't even have protection really from the rain. And yeah. Liberia and has this unforgiving multi-month rainy season and they don't have like a forest canopy ahead of them so it was just not the right uh, not a good place for them to go they should never have been taken out of their natural habitat in the first place they should have never been 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 bred in captivity anyway the new york blood center after several years decided they didn't want this expense on their balance sheet anymore and they just made an announcement to the locals that we're going to stop sending money you know this is liberia's problem now Thankfully, there was a researcher. Did they explain or justify that? I mean, what was they their... said that the chimps are owned by Liberia? Huh. But the New York Blood so Center they're no longer cre- our responsibility, and we're not going to pay right. for it. New York Blood Center created these chimps. chimps they bred yeah. them, in, they kidnapped them, and they created that. They they bred them in captivity. They created this problem, and then we're, we're walking away from it, blaming blaming Liberia because maybe on paper the country owned the chimpanzees. Yeah. So 
so when word got out in the New York Times that they abandoned the chimps and left them there to die, I wanted to help, yeah. you know, because I'm in New York City and the New York Blood Center is just 50 blocks away from here. As an aside, the chimps would have died. All of them would have died right. were it not for... Then this, by the way, was during Ebola. Remember yeah. the Ebola wow. outbreak yeah, in West... Sure. This was at the height of the Ebola outbreak where they made this decision. They thought, you know what? The world is distracted by Ebola. No one's going to care yeah. right now that, about this chimp situation. They were wrong, thankfully. And the New York Times reported on it. And I heard about it from other sources too. And um, there was a researcher, an NIH researcher in Liberia at the time who bumped into one of the caregivers who brought the food to the islands every other day. And she saw him with a truck full of food and said, what, where, what are you doing with that? And he explained, uh, at this point, we're, we're taking money out of our own pockets wow. to feed these chimps who are starving to death on these islands because the New York Blood Center abandoned them. She contacted the Humane Society of the United States. And so the Humane Society of the United States got together with a bunch of other groups. They put up a GoFundMe campaign and raised a fortune quickly to get money to the locals to feed these chimps. Mm -hmm. And then they hired an American couple Jimmy and, Jen, uh, Jimmy and Jenny Desmond, who have a lot of experience with captive uh, chimpanzees and captive gorillas, to move there to oversee this operation, mm -hmm. to bring, hire back the locals who lost their jobs when the New York Blood Center stopped paying them, to, you know, to get a diet, you know, a daily, daily deliveries of food instead of every other day, the right nourishment, enrichment mm -hmm. for these chimps. The Desmonds are veterinarians? or uh, He's a veterinarian, okay. and she has chimpanzee and gorilla, you know, experience, experience. running sanctuaries. Okay. So can I, can I ask one other question? Yeah. How much money was at stake? I mean, cause this is a few dozen chimps. Oh, you said 60, 60 chimps. Okay. So 66 chimps. Yeah. How much money is at stake for New York city blood center? Was it a huge expense for them or oh, was good, it? Good question. I don't think we ever knew exactly the amount that they were spending, but okay. it, it couldn't be a lot because yeah, compared to how the large the organization, the cost is of labor is much yeah. less expensive there. And yeah. the cost of food to feed the 60, it was a, a pittance relative. Yeah. This was an organization worth hundreds of millions, millions of, of dollars. dollars. Yeah. And that had profited tremendously off of these chimps. Mm -hmm. The least they could do is give them food and water after terrorizing them. They lived no. in cages for years, Ugh. awful cages. Uh, and the only time they ever got out was when they were darted and taken in for surgery. Wow. So, so an infrastructure was put in place in Liberia to take care of these chimps, get them daily food and water deliveries. But, and then, and then I, we were on the ground in New York city doing, running this grassroots campaign to hold the New York blood center accountable. Mm -hmm. So first we started at the blood center itself protesting. We did a disruption in the lobby. We, we um, then you we came to the Barry and protested one of their board members. I came right. Yeah. Which was a we whole other story. That, that yeah. could be a whole other podcast because <laughs> it was during black lives matter. And yeah, that was anyway, controversial. That, yeah. yeah. Super controversial. Um, and um, so uh, we were, First, we started to target the the board members. Mm -hmm. First, at, the, at their places of business, at their homes. You know, you you can't abandon these chimps. You've got no. to to pay for their care. They had to be held accountable for abandoning these chimps. Yeah. And those protests got super heated. Mm -hmm. People. So there was one guy who lives on the Upper West Side. This guy, Michael Hoden, lived on 86th and Broadway, which is a, a, a busy intersection. Uh, and we were protesting in front of his apartment building at night and the neighbors were furious and mm. we weren't going to leave. And yeah. it was, that's where a pressure campaign gets a little bit, um, unpleasant sure. when all of these unwitting sort of people who yep. did nothing wrong are all of a sudden have to hear us screaming outside their windows mm -hmm. at night. Mm -hmm. And again, maybe that's a whole other topic, but, uh, when that wasn't working, 
we started to go after the corporate donors of mm -hmm. the New York Blood Center, MetLife, Citigroup, and IBM. Mm -hmm. And we, when they wouldn't, well, Citigroup immediately severed ties with the uh, New York Blood Center to their yeah. credit and gave $50,000 to the Humane Society wow. to oversee the care of the chimps. Okay. They were extraordinary. Uh, and They probably had someone like you on the inside. Uh, they brought us right? into like, the just like room. you were the the farmer representative, you know, because that's crucial. I, I bet there was some there inside Citigroup who was sympathetic. But anyways, go the ahead. global head of public yeah. affairs brought us into a very fancy boardroom and met with us, got a whole presentation and allowed me to make an entire presentation mm -hmm. and made the decision that they were going to issue a public statement basically condemning the New York, York Blood City. Center for abandoning That's these amazing. chimps and, and writing a check for 50. And so we thought, wow, this is great. We're going to go after the other corporate donors too. The others yeah. were more difficult. MetLife, we... Can I just interject yeah. real quickly too? Having heard your presentations, Donnie is an amazing presenter. You're funny, uh -huh. you're charismatic, and I have no doubt part of the reason they did that was because of what you presented to them. And it's also one of the reasons why... You know, it, when you're in a position of power, you got to listen to people. Because I, I have no doubt that a lot of powerful people right now, I'm thinking about Donnie Moss, I'm thinking, this is some irrational, radical, crazy animal rights activist. And then you sit down with somebody like Donnie and you realize, wow, this is like a really charming, smart person who has a lot of compelling things to say. And until you actually sit down and talk right. to people, you won't realize it. Because I'm just screaming out your Cause, window. Because yeah, you, you're caricaturing them. You're right. seeing them as the other. And, and so it's so important for all of us, whatever position we're in, to always listen. Because you don't know when the other side of some issue actually has something really compelling to say that you're missing out on. And yeah. Citigroup saw that when they yeah. were willing to talk to you. But anyways. But the inconvenient truth for Citigroup is that they had to go out on a limb and yeah. issue this statement. And that got other companies angry at them. Yeah. For issuing that statement because yeah. then that put them on the spot. Stop. Yeah. So they took risks. Yeah. It, yeah. It, it, you know, that we weren't even considering, considering when yeah. we were asking them to take a stand. But they also didn't want to be subjected to protests. Sure. Yeah. And so they may, you know, maybe they were, maybe it was pure compassion or maybe they were making a calculated, you know, yeah. as a decision, decision, which is the lesser of two evils. We went to MetLife. They ignored us. We were protesting in their lobby. Uh, we went to the CEO's house in, in a New York City suburb. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, and it was relentless. We went, it was just, it, this went on for like a year with MetLife and then IBM. And IBM mm -hmm. was willing to talk to us and meet with us, but they wouldn't, they weren't actually willing to sort of pull the trigger and do something. Mm -hmm. And eventually it just, the whole campaign reached a fever pitch and the police were increasingly angry, you know, furious at our protests that were so disruptive and telling us that we weren't allowed to do them anymore. Mm. Uh, all of a sudden the laws changed. We couldn't be there at 8 PM, you know, mm. it used to be 10 PM, but now it's 8 PM, stuff like that. Um, and it reached, which means effectively you can't even protest when people are around, right? If you can't, cause people are at offices and yeah, but anyways, go ahead. So the campaign reached a fever pitch. MetLife finally issued a statement without even con like Consulting acknowledging them. us. And um, they never, to this day, they never acknowledged us, but issued a statement saying they're severing ties with the blood center. Wow. And then I... Because I, of the chimps, did they Yeah, because why? of this. Yeah. Wow. They wanted to get rid of us. Okay. They weren't motivated by the care of the chimps. They were motivated to get rid, rid of, of us. us. Yeah. And I, I, and I think IBM ultimately did the same thing. Mm -hmm. They just said, they're, they're not budging. We're, we're going to join the others. Mm -hmm. And then, I, then the blood center, unbeknownst to me, met with the Humane Society and came to the decision they were going to give the Humane Society $6 million to oversee wow. the care of the chimps. Okay. With that, the Humane Society put out a press release, got all the credit in the media for the $6 million, which would never have been granted to give it to them had we not made the sacrifices we made for two years. Yeah. And, uh, but we were thrilled. We were just so happy that 
the $6 million was given mm -hmm. and that these chimps were going to get food and water indefinitely and, and maybe care more care than that. Sure. Yeah. And so that's all we were really focused on, focused on is the fact that, that we were able to do this. And also it was also a victory that we can get corporate America yeah. to, to step out of their comfort zone and issue statements going against a charity. Mm -hmm. I mean, the, the company said, we don't do that. We just mm -hmm. don't do that. Mm -hmm. You're asking us to do something we don't do. And they did because they yeah. didn't want to be subject. It shows the power of a pr pressure movement. Yeah. Um, what did the New York, New York Blood Center say when they made that donation? Did they make a public statement and acknowledge oh, we are, mistakes? They, <coughs> well, they, they worked together. The okay. Humane Society of uh, U.S. and uh, the New York Blood Center, they worked together and crafted this protest. New York Blood Center said, we're so glad we found a partner who can oh, wow. do this. You know, who so they basically deliver. made it seem like we were always going to do this. And right. Yeah, that's right. So, when they that's had so no scummy. intention. They cut funding because yeah. the chairman of the board, a multi-billionaire named Howard Milstein, just didn't want this on the balance sheet anymore in the wow. meantime throughout the course of this he ended up coming the most one of the most powerful men in new york city yeah. came off the board the board there was a full shakedown of the board over yeah. all over this i mean it was the power of grassroots activism it's yeah. the, just the best example Amazing. i can give um so the humane society took you know was had now had all this money not to mention all the money they got from celebrities and and individual donors and now they had six million plus hundreds upon hundreds of thousands of dollars of, of extra money and they're still raising money off of these chimps and they in all of these years have not built any infrastructure on these six islands mm. no shelters so that the chimps have can escape the rain during the rainy season no holding facilities on each island where they if they need to isolate a chimp for vet care or to do observation or to do introductions you know if they need to move chimps around because the social groups aren't working there's no infrastructure at all and chimps have died and suffered as a result and it is infuriating so when and you've I seen this personally because you actually I've, went I've out to twice. Liberia and talked to the Desmonds and yeah and saw the condition the animals are raised and t tell us about the experience before you go into you know what's happened since then so you go to Liberia why did you go to Liberia in the first place just because you wanted to see kind of the beneficiaries of the work you were doing and the victims. Of so work. I went to Liberia. The first time was before we even got the $6 million. Okay. Uh, during one of the protests uh, at, a, uh, at a New York Blood Center board member's home on the Upper East Side, uh, some obnoxious, and this was, this is slightly, during, this was during the massive droughts in California. Mm -hmm. And some guy walked by and said, how do you even know this is happening? Have you been there? Have you mm -hmm. seen these abandoned chimps? And yeah. I hadn't been there. And I said, well, how do you know there are droughts in California? Have you yeah, been there? Yeah. No, you just, we, it's, we know There's they're happening. evidence for sure. Uh, and so, so he, he sort of put a bee in my bonnet, pardon, pardon the species <laughs> phrase, to go see, um, to, 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 to see, yeah. you know, the situation for myself. Because we were out there advocating day in and day out for these chimps. And so I got to know the Desmonds through email, um, and they were so grateful for the work that we were doing on behalf of the chimps who now they were taken care of in Liberia on these six mm -hmm. islands. And uh, they said, you know, you should really come out and see for yourself mm -hmm. and you can stay with us and, you know, we'll take care of everything. And I did. And I, and if you go to theirturn.net and if you look, you know, search on my website for, you know, chimpanzees or Liberia, you know, you could see one of the many, many videos I, I did from on, on my two trips to Liberia. And at this, t at that time, this was the first, this was before the New York Blood Center even gave the money, but the Desmonds were in charge. Mm -hmm. And I went on the daily feeding on the boat 
and you and and as I was interviewing Jenny and the and the chimps are sort of coming out of their trees and wow. coming toward the to the beach. Yeah, I think I remember seeing videos. To get, of this. It's really to, powerful to get the food from the care from the caregivers, you know, who aren't supposed to get too close and probably do get too close. Because yeah. anyway, so Jen, as Jenny was telling me, she said when she first arrived after the chimps had been abandoned and were hungry and unsure of what, if they were going to eat again, the chimps would frantically run wow. to the beach. But now, by the time I had gotten there, they were like slowly meandering because they knew <laughs> they, you. they knew that the food was coming yeah. every day and they didn't have to worry anymore. And she burst into tears as she was telling that story. It was so powerful mm-hmm. because they, they, they could trust again. They knew that they were going to be fed. And Gosh. so... The Desmonds were also providing them with enrichment because there's not a lot for them to do on these islands, like, you know, burying food and tools and, you know, ways for them to pass the time. Yeah. Um, And um, while the Desmonds were there, the government began to drop off baby chimpanzees on their doorstep. Oh, my gosh. These were chimps unrelated to the chimps on the islands. These were chimps who poachers were were capturing in the jungle and selling as pets. Mm -hmm. And because... The government knew that there were chimpanzee experts in Liberia on the ground. They could confiscate the babies who were being trafficked Mm -hmm. as pets and bring them to the Desmonds, and the Desmonds could take care of them. Mm -hmm. So the Desmonds found themselves within months of arriving of having to create a sanctuary. Yeah. And HSUS told them to turn away the chimps. Wow. And they said, we can't turn away the chimps. We, first of all, they would have, they would end up being boxed up and like shipped to some other, I mean, you just can't do that to 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 a baby, baby. Yeah. but also if you if you if there's no place for the government to bring chimpanzees then they'll turn a blind eye to the trafficking mm-hmm. and to the poaching so a sanctuary is pivotal in the conservation you know if you want to conserve a species you need a sanctuary there yeah uh and so they said no and ultimately humane society got rid of them wow. and so the two people who were on the ground who were doing such good work taking care of these chimps with food and enri- enrichment, nourishment, and, and care were all of a sudden fired, basically. Okay. And and they didn't replace them mm-hmm. for a, a year. And so that was devastating to the Desmonds because they got to know each of these 66 chimps by name. Mm-hmm. And uh, they wanted to take care of them. They mm-hmm. weren't there for the money. for the, for the I mean, they were there to help these chimps. And so now it's 2021, there are no, there's no infrastructure on these islands. Uh, the chimps are getting fed twice daily, which is an improvement. But, you know, I'm sure the enrichment is not good. And there's no infrastructure in place to give them vet care and, and to do all these other things I mentioned. So there's no veterinarian who's replaced? Is it Jim Desmond? What's yeah, his name? Yeah, so he's a veterinarian. There is a veterinarian on uh, there. Okay. But there's no way to easily there's there's no way to access the chimps. You need a holding you need a holding facility on mm-hmm. each island in order to bring out to, to to get a chimp who needs to come off an island or sure. and bring that chimp back onto the island or introduce a new chimp. Sure. You just need to have holding facilities and they don't have that. Yeah. And so there's it just no makes structures it, on the building at all. There, there's no structures, structures on the six island, islands in say. order to get yeah. in order to, to be able to provide care. veterinary care. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and so one one chimp was had, was bitten by a, a snake, mm-hmm. and by the time they figured out how to get this chimp off the island, they had to. And this is this is long after the Desmonds were gone. gone they had yeah. to amputate a leg, and the Ugh. chimp ended up dying in a New York blood center cage. Wow! Where I mean, Ugh. the trauma, and all the chimps back on the islands 
on the island where this particular chimp came from didn't know what happened to this chimp. The chimp yeah. just vanished and died a miserable, lonely, painful death inside of a in cage. a New York blood center cage where that chimp probably had lived once before in terror yeah. and fear. And so when I learned that chimps were, when I learned that the Humane Society of the United States sued whistleblowers who came forward about animal, the mistreatment of animals at HSUS Sanctuary in Georgia, Project Chimps, I jumped right on it. Yeah, and there were a I bunch saw... of employees. I think it was. Oh yeah, it was, it was basically a significant percentage of the people who worked there. Right, who were there was a letter signed by yeah. twenty-two people who had either worked there or volunteered there, including veterinarians, primatologists, mm-hmm. who came wrote a letter to the board saying this has to be. There are serious welfare issues at this sanctuary. They have to be addressed. Mm-hmm. But two of those individuals. Came, uh, created a website called helpthechimps.org and they really blew the whistle publicly. And the Humane Society, Project Chimps, which is a Humane Society sanctuary, sued them. And so when that law, when I, you know, and I thought, wow, that's when you sue someone for speaking out against animal abuse, that's what, that's like taking a page out of the playbook of big animal ag. That's what yeah. they do to silence people who are speaking out about animal cruelty. Yet a humane society, the Humane Society is doing that. But that's not right. Um, these women had nothing to gain by coming forward personally. And so I, and I believed them because I saw for myself, yeah. the, the, the substandard care HSUS was giving just, just care to keep them alive. That's mm-hmm. it. Because so you I, went back after the $6 million was given. Right. To after they had already gotten rid yeah. of the Desmonds, I went back, back to Liberia and I, and, and I just could see the, the, the quality of the food, the quality of the enrichment yeah, and nothing yeah. had changed on the islands. Yeah. The whole idea Despite was they the were, were going could... to get this money and things were going to happen. Yeah. Nothing, nothing happened. happened. And yeah. still, and they just keep making excuses. In the meantime, the Desmonds now have 70, 70 something chimps in their care, mm-hmm. unrelated to the chimps on their islands. And they built a sanctuary from the ground up in the forest during COVID without one one thousandth of the resources, the resources. Yeah. of the Humane Society. And the Humane Society is saying, well, there are logistical challenges. We're, I mean, they're just making excuses and they're doing the same thing at Project Chimps in Georgia where you've got, uh, how many chimps is it now? Oh, 60-something chimps. I'm confusing Liberia and, uh, and, and Georgia now. Um, 70, I think it's 70-something chimps who are basically spend their days in concrete rooms yeah. and have access to an outdoor habitat once every three days for just a few hours. Yeah. Yeah. It's atrocious. That's not a sanctuary. It's a warehouse. Yeah. And I know two of the, the chimps that the non-human rights project, a, a very prominent animal rights organization that I'm very friendly with. Steve Wise is a friend of mine. He's a great guy. He's been litigating on behalf of animals for decades. In fact, he's a legendary figure in animal law you know, managed to get Hercules and Leo out of their cages. I don't even remember. Stony, was Brook. Stony Brook sent to this sanctuary and, and they are now essentially publicly protesting the humane society for the substandard care. These chimps are given. Well, I just want to clarify. They had an agreement to have the chimps sent to save the chimps, another sanctuary, sanctuary. Yeah. in Florida where they would have been outside yeah. every day, and not in a, in a concrete pen their entire right. lives. And yeah. so they were blindsided yeah. when, you know, and it's a complicated contractual reasons. HSUS has control of all of the chimps going from New Iberia Research Center, uh, a, a lab in Louisiana. All of those chimps by contract are going to Project, Project chimps, chimps, which is HSUS's sanctuary. Yeah. So Hercules and Leo, who were owned by New Iberia, had to go to Project Chimps. They didn't have to. HSUS could have said, yeah, sure, you could send them to save the chimps, but they didn't, they didn't yeah. allow it. And now those chimps who... Non-human rights project fought so hard for are languishing in concrete rooms. Yeah. 
not dissimilar to where, where they were probably living in Stony Brook when they were being right. remember. So I, I want to end with two questions and then um, I'll offer a thought. My, my first of the two questions is what do you think HSUS is thinking in all this? Because I, I know a lot of people. HSUS, for those of you who don't know, is the largest, it's the Humane Society of the United States. It's the largest animal protection organization in the United States and probably the world. And I know a lot of individuals who are profoundly good people. Oh, yeah. Profoundly yeah. good work at HSUS. So what do you think is the thought process behind the decision makers at HSUS? And who are the decision makers at issue? Yeah, and I don't want to vilify everyone on the ground. There are lots of fantastic people on the ground who yeah. work for HSUS who are, really care about animal rights and want to do the right thing. But the people, first of all, the people at the very top, the board, is not comprised of animal people. Mm -hmm. You know, they maybe some of them are dog and cat people, but one guy who we protested in the Hamptons not only posted pictures of himself wearing fur and eating animals, but he owns a clothing store in the Hamptons which sells leather and wool and yeah. um, suede, all, a down. And it's and I was there a couple weekends ago, and I literally saw his the windows are filled with leather. Mm -hmm. And so, if when you have people at the very top who are setting the tone, I, I, that could be a problem. Yeah. Um. You know, I think look this the the CEO of the Humane Society, Kitty Block. I don't know her personally. Um. I do know that when she went to Liberia several years ago to see the chimps on the islands. Now, unrelated to the chimps in Georgia. Um, she didn't even want to go to the islands to see the chimps. She traveled all the way to Liberia and she had to be cajoled into going to see what the setup was for the chimps on these islands. I don't I don't know. I just can't help but think she just doesn't really care hmm. that chimpanzees are languishing in cages in Georgia and they just don't want to spend the money that maybe it's more expensive than their other programs and they want to just spend the bare minimum to to keep these chimps alive. And um you know, yeah, taking care of chimpanzees is expensive, but they've raised a fortune off of captive chimps, and they're continuing to raise a fortune off of captive chimps. And so the, the least they could do is provide them with a humane retirement if they're mm -hmm. going to have this, quote, sanctuary in Georgia. And yeah. they have 236 acres of forested land. Yeah. I mean, and, and during COVID, they built hiking trails for tourists. It's a sanctuary. It's not yeah, supposed yeah. to be for human amusement. Yeah. So I guess you think that the, the thought process is, is just we're we're not animal people and this is we're, we're doing enough and, and you, i mean i'm just trying I, well, to like what I, is what is the intention we don't want to spend the money we don't, we don't spend, spend the money, money so to you build think the thought process is just too expensive and you're not being realistic about what's possible that's like what they're I, thinking well i mean kitty has acknowledged publicly yeah uh, in uh because there was a letter writing campaign a couple months ago where probably hundreds of people sent her letters and she responded with a sort of a, a, a statement in which she said, we know that this is something that's in the works and we've always said we need to provide them without. We've always said this. Mm -hmm. uh, so at least she's now acknowledging, but why didn't they break grant on this years ago okay. before they even brought these chimps in? Yeah. So if Kitty were here sitting at this table today, you think she'd say, you know, it was expensive, it was hard, and it's just taken us a lot of time well, to what, try and do some things for these chimps. What they're saying is we know we need to create more outdoor habitats. It's been difficult because of COVID and because yeah, of weather, yeah. but that's not an excuse. This is years, this is a many multi-year problem long for before sure. COVID. Um, but also they are, she's claiming that they do have outdoor access mm. daily. And that's so frustrating, you know, in, in the statements that they post online, the chimps have daily access to outdoor porches. The mm -hmm. porches are concrete rooms that are covered in concrete and have metal bars. They're yeah. not outdoors. And it's such, it's so duplicitive, 
duplicitous of them to suggest that they are outdoors. What they should say is, yeah, this is the situation is desperate. We do need to create additional habitats. These chimps should be outside every day. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, these concrete rooms can't meet their needs. And so it's no wonder that they're they're engaging in stereotypic behavior, behavior such as yeah. species smearing wow. and rocking and hair plucking behaviors that some of them didn't have when they arrived, they arrived at, at the, the sanctuary. sanctuary. Wow. Yeah. No, it's it, what you're saying about outdoor access. It's, it's, it's kind of a disturbing parallel to animal agriculture actually, because when you buy free range and cage free eggs or, or chicken, a lot of times you'll see those marketing terms and, and literally what they'll have is a little porch that most of the animals can't even get into. I mean, I've seen some of these, you'll have a, a factory farm, with maybe five, 10, 15,000 animals in a porch where maybe 20 of them can sit. And, and that's considered free range or organic outdoor access. Uh, and sometimes they don't even put the porch down, so you can't even get access to it. The first egg farm we ever did an open rescue at, um, Petaluma Farms in Sonoma County, it's a huge Whole Foods egg supplier of Judy's family farm eggs. And on the packaging, you'll see like a little girl with a hen outdoors in this beautiful pasture. Mm. And, and the reality is it's a huge factory farm and they have these porches that even, even though those porches are pretty miserable and none of the birds can even access them, and all the time, every single time I've been to Petaloon Farms, and I've been there dozens of times, I've never even seen them open. So I've right. never even seen a bird outdoors, and they're still marketing, and they were marketing as you know, cage-free, organic, outdoor access eggs. So it's, it's weird how the parallel between... But So my last question before we close, and we've got to get going soon because we've got 15 minutes, is what do you say to people, including me, frankly, who uh, believe that one of the problems in, in a movement is infighting. And, you know, why are you going after HSUS? Even if they're making some mistakes, you know, why not focus on factory farmers or, or frankly, Stony Brook, the labs that are in many ways the root cause of this. And, and how do you respond to that? Like, what do you say to someone who says, oh, why are you going after HSUS? Infighting stinks. And, yeah, it does. And I hate doing it. Um, I, but first of all, I'm not willing to turn a blind eye to the plight of these chimps yeah. and to the whistleblowers who, who were courageous enough to come forward to expose what was happening. Yeah. If we hadn't helped them and they had been saddled with hundreds of thousands of dollars in legal yeah. bills and their lives had been destroyed, that would have really disincentivized other whistleblowers from coming forward. Yeah. So it was bigger than just the chimps, mm-hmm. um, though the chimps would have been plenty of a reason to, to, to run this campaign. And the second thing is, I don't, you know, I, I'm not even convinced that this is infighting because I don't yeah. see HSUS as an animal rights organization. Yeah, to the extent they're acting this way. Yeah. Well, here's my thought. Uh, my thought is, you know, we talked a little bit during this podcast about the dangers of power and how all of us have to recognize the power we have and when that power can corrupt us. And that one of the tests of power is whether you're willing to talk to folks who have less power, who are raising some concern. And, you know, in many ways, I have a lot of power and a lot of people have criticized DXE. And I'm not saying I've done this perfectly. I think there are probably times I haven't listened enough to people who criticize DXE, both within DXE and outside of DXE, but I have tried. And people have disrupted talks I've given, and I've invited them up to the stage and said, let's talk about this. I had a talk once in, in Milwaukee, I think it was, where someone disrupted my talk and was complaining about something DXE did. And I actually stopped the talk. And for 20 minutes, I just talked to her. Uh, I'm not saying Kitty has to go to that length and that we have to just stop everything we're doing to listen to every critic. But I do think the mentality and tone we have towards critics has to be that way if we're actually using our power responsibly. And so my challenge to HSUS in this context is, I know people at HSUS, including in senior leadership, I know they're good people. Someone like Josh Balk is someone I consider a friend. I think he's one of the most profoundly good human beings I've met. I also know that you are not just one of the kindest people, but one of the smartest and most reasonable people I know. And if Citigroup <laughs> can talk to you and realize 
you've got a good point to make, then surely HSUS can realize that. And so my goal and, and my vision for the next few months is that I will get, whether it's Kitty Block, another senior executive HSUS in a room with you, we can present your case and we can find a way to resolve this so we can all focus on making the world a better place, including for these 66 chimps. Um, or actually, it's more than that because you've got the ones in, in Georgia too. So that's my suggestion and my thought. Yeah. Um, let's, let's make it happen. Yeah, thank you. I'm going to text Josh right after I this. appreciate your support. I will text him and say, Josh, we got to do something about this. And Josh doesn't work in this area for the record. He's in the farm animal right. side. But he's a good person. There are a lot of other good people. And when good people have a conflict, we talk it out and we make it work. So let's do it. That'd be great. Um, we got to go very soon. So, Donnie, any final thoughts before we close? What, I, I guess I, I just I guess I just want to say thank you to DXE because you might, probably don't even remember this or it's not top of mind. But you know, the first and only time I've ever been to a factory farm was with yeah. DXE on an investigation, and you, um, you know, you coached me a little bit in advance, and you know, I, you know, you did some screening to ensure I wasn't going to screw the whole thing up, <laughs> but you took a risk by yeah. bringing me with you because I didn't have experience, and um, and you, and I was mesmerized because. I, in the process of, of going through and documenting, I was interviewing you and you were yeah. so articulately explaining the plight of these, these were egg laying hens. Yeah. And, um, you know, and I learned so much from you sort of as an activist and sort of about animals, about hens themselves, you know, in this extremely stressful situation where we were inside a factory farm in the middle of the night and who, who knows who was, you know, who, what yeah. kind of security was lurking about. And so I just want to thank you for giving me the courage to do that and uh, for giving so many people the courage to step out of their comfort zones to fight for animals. Because that's how this is going to happen. That's where we'll ha we'll ha we, have to, we have to step out of our comfort zones to achieve liberation. Yeah. Well, I didn't give you the courage. You had it in yourself. I just found it. And I was lucky to find it. And, and that was a dark day, a, a beautiful day, because I think we, we rescued some birds that day, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. So we'll, we'll talk about that on another podcast. Actually, last thing I want to say, and literally, we have to finish in like the next minute because we got to go. What is one piece of advice you give someone about change, whether it's personal change or social change? What you've been doing this really decades, going back to your work in the corporate world. So what's what's one lesson you think people should take home from all of your experiences? Well, I mean, I really, I you know, the lesson, the most important lesson I've learned as an activist. Well, I learned a lot of lessons from having worked in the corporate world, and but but as since becoming an activist, the the lesson that I, that that has affected me the most is is the idea that we do need to step out of our comfort zones. That, that when I heard you or whoever at DXE make a presentation about this or incorporate that in a presentation years ago, it really made such a sort of indelible impact on me. Hmm. I think about that when I'm when I know that I need to do more. I force myself to step out of my comfort zone, and that's what. So many. That's what this pressure campaign yeah. was. It has been about stepping out of our comfort comfort zones. Yeah, I think those are good words to close by. So, Donnie, thanks so much. Not just for the time you spent today, but for the years of amazing work you've done for so many different causes. And and yeah, let's let's have that conversation with HSUS and make sure we, we can do the right thing for these animals. Yeah, okay? thank you for your help with that. All right, thanks, Donnie. Isn't Donnie amazing? Everybody, it was a very fun conversation, and I think I told you this. Uh, I think we did come up in the conversation, but Donnie is, in addition to being a brave and amazing and kind and generous dude, also a part-time stand-up comic. So Donnie, next time you're performing, make sure everybody knows so we can come out to support. But speaking of coming out and supporting, uh, there's a lot of people support this podcast, including Priya Sahani, who's busy editing this podcast as I speak. Shalom Lafakis, who is 
<laughs> Ashley manages more of the logistical details and makes sure this thing gets done. Wani Rose, the co-producer and co-founder of this podcast and co-founder of Direct Action Network, who's you know been my partner in crime for almost a decade now. And Crystal Heath and Julie Waldrop, who do a lot of things behind the scenes. So thanks to all them and thanks to you. And if you enjoyed this podcast, please rate it, subscribe to it, and whatever platform you're using to listen to podcasts. And maybe most important, maybe most important, share it with a friend because we don't have a big ad budget. We rely on people like you sharing this content and, and showing people that it can add value to their lives. So thanks so much, and I'll see you next time.